This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Newcom.com. This episode is brought to you by Bub's Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen, and Bub's provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witness personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi, and his friends Sean and TJ founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show retired firefighter and author of Flashpoint, Christy Warren. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from Christy's journey into EMS, some of the horrific calls she had as a paramedic, transitioning into the fire service, the Berkeley fire, the missed search that haunts her, her own mental health journey, some of the tools she's used for post-traumatic growth, her own podcast, writing, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. 
Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Christy Warren. Enjoy. Well, Christy, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We were just chatting before I hit record. I've listened to you for a few years now. Um, every time I'm having someone come on the show, I like to research and listen to the podcast. And yours is one that I've heard several times. So I am so glad that we are finally getting to sit down and uh, have a discussion together. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, James. I'm I, uh, I'm super honored to be on. And uh, yeah, I I too listen to your show. And I don't know. I never even like reached out to be on your show because I was like, oh, this guy's got way too many super cool people on. I don't think I'd ever get on. So yeah, I'm really excited. Thank you. It's, it's funny. So many people have said that, including people that are very, very famous. And it's just like, you know, we're all human beings. I mean, if someone's my only um, kind of the bar that I set is just simply being a good person, you know, don't come on here. I had a guy reach out once and he said, oh, he has a t-shirt company. He's a firefighter. He should come on my show. I'm like, that's it. Do you do anything for charity with this money? No. Yeah. Why? I'm like, okay, well then you're not coming on my show. Yeah. But, you totally. know, good human beings. Some of them are famous. Some of them are not. And obviously in the fire service, none of us are famous. So um, I'm glad that we uh, connected when we did then. Yeah, me too. Thank you again. I'm, I'm excited about this. So very first question, where on planet earth are we finding you my afternoon, your morning? Well, I am in a place called a uh, city called Pleasant Hill. It is very pleasant, and it's on a hill. It's uh, I'm about about twenty miles from San Francisco, about uh, northeast of San Francisco. Um, so yeah, just in the uh, San Francisco, you know, California in the Bay Area. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. Well, pretty much, but yeah. So yeah, Pleasant Hill. I wish we had a time machine to go back to when they named that town. It's probably exactly the conversation you just had. Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning of your journey. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. So I was actually, strangely enough, born in Los Angeles. My parents grew up in the Bay Area. In fact, I went to the same high school my dad went to, the high school my mom went to as one of our rivals. And so they just kind of did a stint in LA for work. And then I happened to be born down there and then we, and then we came back. So I have no recollection of living in LA. Um, so my childhood was pretty challenging. You know, my parents were very, very young. My mom was 19. My dad was like 21. And, you know, they were kind of a, oops, we have to get married because that's what they did back then. And, um, and I was born. And then three years later, my brother was born. And shortly after my brother was born, my parents got divorced and it, it was uh, not a pretty divorce at all. Um, and so, but, you know, it's like they were, they were really young and had no idea what to do with a couple of kids. And my, my mom, you know, she 
that was the last thing that she, I think, wanted mm-hmm. to do was was raise kids. And she she was really into alcohol and kind of got into the wrong crowd and started doing drugs. And my brother, when he was nine, he went to go live with my dad. Uh, we'd we'd see him every other weekend. It was you know the custody agreement, and so he went to go live with my dad, and I, I stayed living with my mom, and. You know, it's like I kind of really raised myself. You know, my mom was really not around very much at all. I and mean, when she was, she still really wasn't like present at all. And I had a grandmother who was incredibly supportive and loved me a lot. And I was actually going to go live with her when I was nine. And she ended up getting cancer and uh, dying pretty quick. So that ended that. And yeah, I just, you know, I grew up, I was an angry kid because you know, my parents weren't around and it was always, I don't know. It just felt like everything was a constant, excuse me. Everything was a constant fight. And, uh, so yeah, it was kind of a, a, a sorted, a sorted growing up. I've asked this to a few people. It's just come up organically recently. Um, when you were raised with a mother, I mean, as you said, she wasn't super present and I know, uh, I heard you on um, a slight chance, a slight change of plans podcast, and you talked about there being um, recognition when you succeeded in sports, but behind closed door there wasn't. And I, I can definitely relate to that. But growing up with a mother but no father, there's an assumption that well, you know, it's it's a daughter that's fine. You know, you can teach them the woman ways, or it's a son that's fine. The dad can teach them the manly ways. But obviously, there's a need for two different energies, whether it's an actual gender or you know whatever it is. But you know, it takes a village, so at least two people to raise a child. When you look back, what were the the kind of ripple effects of not having that father figure in the family dynamic as you were growing up? You know, that, that's a tough one because I really didn't know anything any different. You know, they was, I mean, I was four when they divorced. And so as far as I knew, that's just kind of the way it was. I think if I had spent, you know, when I did go to my dad's, he he was a pretty angry guy himself. And, you know, we felt like we were a burden. Like he would complain all the time about having to pick us up from soccer or, you know, the drive. You know, it was a good 45 minute hour drive between where we lived. And there was always a lot of traffic and and um so yeah i hear what you're saying about the you know the two parents but you know i i think if my mom was present and loving i think i would have done just fine but uh but neither parents were really kind of invested in being parents at the time and so yeah i don't i don't know that's a tough question to answer just since i don't you know i never had two parents yeah, I think that, and, you know, you know in, in the woman ways and the, you know, in the fatherly ways, um, you know, I'm kind of, I don't want to say weird, but, you know, when I was a kid growing up, I played sports and I even like I played baseball instead of softball. And so, you know, there wasn't really, I don't know, there wasn't really any kind of defined deficit in terms of that, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And I think the the difference is the people I've spoken to with this this when this came up was a loving single parent. Whereas you had this kind of distortion on both sides. So maybe it's a different kind of lens that you have. Yeah, I think it's a real different lens that I see it through, definitely. Well you talked about football, soccer and baseball. So what were the sports that you were playing growing up then? Uh I played yeah, I played your football. I played soccer. 
I played uh, I played baseball a lot. I play, I played basketball. So those were the three main sports that I played growing up. And I played them year round. And you know, I played I played uh, I played basketball for my high school team, and I played softball for my high school team, just because that's what I was allowed to play. And then um, you know, I played soccer and basketball at the same time. So I played I played soccer outside of high school. But uh, soccer was my favorite. But yeah, I played all three of those year round, and I started really young too. What about career aspirations during school? What were you dreaming of becoming? Well, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be uh, the first woman uh, professional baseball player. And then, um, you know, I didn't really think about what I wanted to be. You know, I think at some time I said I wanted to be a geologist or something silly like that. I have no idea why. But, um, you know, I used to watch that show when I was a kid called Emergency which uh, Johnny and Roy emergency 51, man, that was like the greatest show on earth. And like, I just remember looking up to those guys and just thinking that was the coolest thing on earth. But honestly, I don't think it ever crossed my mind that I could do that because there were no women on the show, you know, except for Dixie, the nurse. And so it was never like, nobody ever told me I couldn't do it. Like, in fact, my mom always pushed to tell me that I could do anything I wanted to do. But you just didn't see anybody doing it. And so I don't know. Yeah, it just never crossed my mind that I could. And so, but I was always very drawn to, you know, the, that show definitely. And, um, you know, any kind of medical show or, or anything like that. That's really what kind of drew me in. What do you think it was about those shows? I've had this mentioned many, many times, that specific show, Emergency. Show, or yeah. if it was The Police, I forget. It was, uh, God, there was there was a... Johnny something, Johnny 10, the, the, some sort of show. I think it was a little bit before Emergency, but it was a kind uh, of comparable I, I thing for I wish I could police. remember what it But yes, I remember. Ex- I can't remember the name of it. It's terrible. But um, yeah, exactly. There's TJ Hooker, but that was way later. But anyways, yeah, there was a um, yeah, police show. Sorry. Yeah, that was when we were first introduced to Heather Locklear. I remember that clearly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you think about from a recruitment point of view, the re- uh, Emergency sent so many young men and women into paramedicine and or the fire service. When you think about television shows now, and it's ironic because I'm writing the book that I want to get made into a show one day, and it'd be interesting to oh, see cool. if we ever, you know, that comes to fruition. But what I see in some of our TV shows now when it represents the fire service is either very, very camp and soap opera-esque or like Rescue Me starts well and then now all of a sudden they're having sex in the middle of a structure fire and you fucking lost everyone again. So what do you think it was about emergency that really lit that fire in young people that maybe we don't have in some of today's fire service shows? You know, I I think it was the first one and it was the only one. And, you know, it was simple and there wasn't all that drama and like you say, all that campy stuff and, um, but I think I'd have to disagree about Rescue Me. I think Rescue Me was, it was really geared towards what I, I think a lot of people miss the point because, you know, it was, it was kind of, you know, such a, a, an inside glimpse into, you know, the fire service or, you know, the FDNY, which was such a big deal or it is such a big deal. But I think, I think the main message got a little bit lost in that almost, it was really about the PTSD and, you know, Tommy struggling mentally and, you know, all that sex and everything was part of, 
I think that's a lot of, there's a lot of young firefighters who struggle mentally and that's the direction they go. You know, when I've done a lot of work with, you know, up at the West Coast Post Trauma Retreat and talking to firefighters and police officers and all first responders, you know, who are struggling with PTSD and struggling with mental health, that is, you know, like there's alcohol as an outlet and sex is an, is an outlet. And I, I don't want to scare a bunch of wives or anything like that, but there's so many cases of infidelity because they're just looking, you know I mean? They're just looking for relief. They're looking for like this. They're looking in sex and the same exact thing that they're looking into alcohol for. And so I think that part of the show is actually kind of accurate from a lot of people that I've talked to that struggle with mental health, you know, that talk about it behind closed doors and not out in the public or anything like that. But um, yeah, I think rescue me was, pretty pretty accurate in a in a lot of ways but um but shows today yeah i don't know if they get people wanting to do that job or not but yeah i can't watch them they're just oh my god it's like i was like oh now i know what all the cops feel like you know and the cops will, they would say like oh that's nothing like that and oh my gosh yeah there's a friend of mine who said we should do a podcast where we watch you know chicago fire together and just comment on it because it's just my God, I don't mean to put the show down, but it's just ridiculous. It's painful to watch. Well, I had uh, Steve Chikorotis on who's behind that show. And, uh-huh. you know, a lot of the stuff is, is based on real Chicago calls. But he was very politically correct when he put this. But you could tell, okay, you present the script one way. TV company goes, yeah, I kind of like what you're doing, but we're going to do this, this, and this. And it becomes you know, what Absolutely. we end up seeing. So I think that's the sad thing. It, yeah. Yeah. They, they need to make money and they, they want to sell, you know, you know, cause suddenly all the women in the show, you know what I mean? Are all their shirts are unbuttoned and they're pretty and they're thin and you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, that's not what the fire service looks like or acts like it either. So yeah, I, I totally get that. Totally yeah. get that. Yeah, exactly. We don't all look like calendar models either. I hate to tell you ladies. I got a face like a smacked yeah. ass. I'll never be on a calendar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> same here. I'm like, God, never. <laughs> <laughs> well, going back to the sex for a second, I agree with the concept. I mean, like I said, Rescue Me personally lost me as they got a bit further into the, some of the, the episodes. However, when you look at even physiologically, a man, let's just pick on men for a second, when he has an orgasm, downregulates his nervous system. So mm-hmm. as you said, a subconscious coping mechanism from a hypervigilant state to a less hypervigilant state, there is a primal urge for sex. In a healthy relationship, it will stay within the family doors. Maybe for whatever reason, there's an there's a unhealth to that relationship or a mental health on one side, then it might be seeking somewhere else. So I agree from that as a negative coping mechanism and, and identifying that thing is very important because I think firefighters men and women are some of the most beautiful human beings i know and some of the best husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and then a lot of them it's the you know the job happens and then you get into 10 15 years and you know an unaddressed childhood trauma which i'm sure we'll get into and then now you have that breakdown and i don't think that the people that stood on the diamond on the first day of the academy would have done that in a relationship but when you move forward 10 20 years in the job it's not the same person anymore. And this is what we've got to fight to to kind of understand and also advocate for an environment that stops that happening as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it'll, it just will go to, 
you know, identifying symptoms and, you know, when all it, I, I still don't know what to do to prevent PTSD. I mean, I know ways that you, we can definitely help, but my main advocacy is when the, when you start feeling these things, that's when you, you know what I mean? To take care of them and not let them fester and not start drinking. You know what I mean? Start to find positive ways to deal with it instead of trying to cope or mask it or self-medicate. And yeah, I, I really believe that, you know, so much of the infidelity that goes on amongst first responders, you know, like police have some of the highest divorce rates, you know, in the country and it, it's identified with this stuff when it, when it starts and, and deal with it then. And uh, yeah, and you're absolutely right about the hypervigilance and, you know, and oxytocin is released and, you know, all these other kind of feel good things that, you know, it, that shuts some of the crap that's going on in your head. It just shuts it down. And um, it has nothing to do with the strength of the relationship at home. You know, you can have a wonderful, incredible relationship with your significant other, but your brain is like, is dying inside and, and needs, needs chemicals. You know, that's like, it goes back again to a physiological injury and it needs chemicals. And when you get PTSD, it's not some emotional issue. It's, it's your brain changes shape. It's, you know, the serotonin levels are too low. You know, all these, the amygdala is just like ready to explode. It's on high alert. Your sympathetic nervous system is on high alert 24 hours a day. And you can't, you become overwhelmed and you need to find ways to shut that off. And alcohol is a way. And it's really sad because I had a discussion with my psychiatrist and she's talking about how bad alcohol is. And I'm like, yeah, but it, but it works. You know what I mean? It actually works, you know, until it doesn't and screws everything up and it makes your brain even worse. But in the moment it works and gambling works and sex works and, you know, the high you get from shopping works and, you know, all that other kind of stuff. And um, so, yeah, it's really, I mean, it's sad because it destroys so many families and everything, but it's, it's no different, I think, than, than alcohol and, and all that other stuff. So one of the things that I've learned as I progress through this this podcast, and I always credit Jake Clark from Save a Warrior really opening my eyes on this one, is mm-hmm. the massive impact of childhood trauma on mental health, unaddressed childhood trauma. When you hear the conversations in the fire service, especially until recently, it was always, well, it's what you saw. It's the fires that you had. It's the decapitated three-year-old that I wrote about in my book. I mean, those are acute events, but we don't think about what happened to us before we ever put that uniform on. So you talked about this kind of unstable um, family dynamic that you had, and I'm sure, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that security was probably not great for you. When you look back now with this wisdom that you have post-career, you know, your own mental health perspective now, what impact did your childhood have on later years? It had a significant impact. And, you know, I think, you know, they say that we don't choose the job, the job chooses us. Now, of course, there are plenty of first responders who and firefighters who had excellent, wonderful childhoods and they become great firefighters. And But when you look at like who better to, to deal with chaos than somebody who grew up in chaos? It's like we thrive in chaos. That's where we're comfortable. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm very comfortable inside of learning building. I'm very uncomfortable trying to figure out how, you know, to do an Excel spreadsheet. You know what I mean? I prefer to be in a burning building in any minute than trying to figure out how to fill in an Excel spreadsheet. 
And so it, it really, cha- it, it develops our brains and, and our way of thinking and our way of reacting to things to be perfectly suited for the job. And it also has already, our brain has already sustained a tremendous amount of trauma. We've already, you know, our amygdala is already on alert, you know, like growing up with my mom and she married this guy, a stepdad, and um, he was the one that really got her into drugs. And, you know, there, there's drugs all around the house all the time. There's strange people coming and going. Yeah. And like you said, I had very little security. Uh, I was molested by my older stepbrother. And, um, you know, my mom walked in on it and like, was like, oh, look, and turned around and left and never said a word about it. And, and so, like you said, my security was pretty much none and I was hypervigilant. And so I already had all that stuff going on in my head. And then when you start adding, you know, working 48, 72, 96 hour shifts and seeing and constantly being hit with trauma and having to be on guard for 96 hours. And, you know, I remember I read some study and I wish I could find it again, but you know, they, they'd measured firefighters, uh, cortisol levels throughout, you know, a 48 hour shift. And they found that their levels were just as high when they're sitting in a recliner, watching a movie, eating ice cream than they were when they're on their way to a fire. Because even though we're sitting there watching a movie, we know that at any second, the tones could drop and the world could be coming to an end or, you know, somebody's world could be coming to an end and we have to go fix it. And so that hypervigilance just, you know what I mean? It's just that our amygdala is just slowly just keep, keep growing, not growing, but becoming more saturated with whatever chemicals it is that, that puts those things on alert. And um, so, yeah, I think our childhood traumas have a significant effect on, you know, getting, I don't know about getting PTSD, but I think it also, I, I think it also really helps us protect ourselves from those calls. Like all those, like we are really good at, you know, going to a horrendous call and just walking away from it and not being upset by it and not letting these things bother us. And, and so I think the trauma packs in more for some of us who've had these childhood traumas and we're already have built the pathway. So get, you know, to shove that stuff in a box somewhere. And, um, cause it's kind of like, it's like, yeah, we're used to this. This is kind of our daily gig and we grew up in this. And so we are better at shoving that stuff away than maybe somebody who, you know, had a great childhood and, and sees like, holy shit, this is horrible, you know, and can process it better. I mean, I don't know. That's just me talking out of my butt. I'm no professional or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, the, the retreat I work at, every once in a while you get a couple people through there who, who had really good childhoods, but the majority of people had really pretty significant childhoods significantly challenging uh childhoods so yeah it's it's tremendous yeah well i can attest i think i've done with the recordings i haven't put out yet 840 plus conversations a lot of whom are first responders and military and then some others that are completely detached and nearly all of them especially the ones in uniform most of them have trauma now it could be sexual molestation which happens so much and so so prevalent in the male first responders which we are talk about stigma talk about shame 
try getting someone to admit that that was part of their childhood. And if you can't get them to discuss it, how are you going to address it and get them on their wellness journey? You know, so this is what's so heartbreaking. But, you know, there's so many people, and I agree with you 100%, we are drawn to this profession. Firstly, the excitement is like the alcohol, is like the sex. It's it's the excitement yes. for the job when you first come in keeps all those other memories away. You're also wanting to become the protector. Then you're also adding armor. Well, I'm a firefighter. I'm a, you know, I'm an American hero. You know, so there's all these layers that are actually burying that thing. And there's a Mexican proverb that says, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. And I love that quote because- Oh my God, that just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. It's, 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 I mean, it nails it. It's a mic drop, as you say, these days, you know, mm -hmm. because no matter what you do, it's still going to grow until you address it. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that is such a great saying. And, you know, I, I know I just finished a podcast with somebody who the trauma that she experienced, like all throughout her life was just like unbelievable. And it took the very worst thing on earth happening to her to make her deal with it. And it, and it's not even like she was running away from it. I mean, she was, but she didn't even realize it. Like if you asked her, like, how was your childhood? She'd be like, oh, it's, you know, it's okay. You know, my parents, you know, she'd gloss over it and then you start digging and it's like, oh my God. But it's like sometimes, I mean, I, I look back and, you know, when it was starting to happen to me, PTSD was the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Like I would rather, I would rather die. I'd rather like lose my legs. I'd rather go blind or deaf or get cancer. I mean, I mean, no, no disrespect to anybody who's gone through any of that. But at the time, that's how I felt is I would rather go through anything than PTSD and feeling like a failure and being a pussy that couldn't do their job. And because that was that was everything to me, you know, so much for what the, the job stood for and held for me. But um, it took getting PTSD to make me deal with all of that because it was either kill myself or deal with it. Those were my two options. And so I chose to deal with it. And I can tell you right now that getting PTSD was the best thing that ever happened to me because I dealt with all that childhood stuff and all the shame and all these things that happened to me. And I, I'm truly happy now. And it's, it's pretty amazing. It's really amazing. Well, I think that's the part of the conversation that we don't hear even nearly enough, which is the post-traumatic growth part. Yes. You have trauma in your childhood and, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. I was going to say beautiful. It's not beautiful. Ideally, you have a great childhood and, you know, next to no trauma, but it happened, but you have the ability to process it. And I, I something I've talked about a lot, I never got to a super dark place. I've been fucking you know deeply depressed and all these things but never to the point of true crisis like a lot of people that come on here and that's just by the sheer lottery that was my childhood there was some trauma my parents had a horrible divorce almost died in a house fire when i was four almost got collapsed killed by a collapsing wall a few years later so there were some acute events okay that's okay that was that's some significant exactly, trauma. Exactly, and I'm glossing. I mean, that's some I get really <laughs> yeah, that's some pretty significant trauma there. So the other even side though of you had a go ahead, sorry, go no, ahead. no, please carry on. No, no, no. I was just gonna say, you know, even if your parents were loving and took good care of you and you know gave you everything you need, and that's pretty significant trauma. But anyways, carry on. <laughs> so, but those are those are there, and I I used to wet the bed till I was God. I think it was like 12 or 13, like really freaking old for a 
young boy to be wet in the bed. I had night terrors my whole life. Um, yeah, so there were, there were lots of things, but, and I always say this, I grew up on a farm. My dad was a horse vet and a, and a small animal vet. So I saw healing. We had people come through our front doors from homeless people all the way through to members of the extended royal family, depending because of his horse clients. There's a lot of rich people with mm, horses. Okay. And so, and then we always ate. We, you know, we grew our own food mostly. We butchered our own meat and, you know, we ate around the dinner table most of the time. So when you look at the, the things that offset the bad stuff, there was healing. It was, mm -hmm. so, you know, by accident, but there was healing. So that's a beautiful thing. So when I went into the fire service, I don't think my, my bucket was full or whatever analogy, as some people are. The foundation wasn't already kind of, you know, on balsa wood rather than oak. Um, and I think that's a really important conversation is if you had a, a great transition in, then you need to be fighting and advocating, excuse me, fighting and advocating for the people that are struggling. You need to be one of the ones, all right, then let's raise people up. If you're doing well, great, raise people up. But the hope that is using your trauma, processing it and it becoming a superpower, that's what we need to talk about. Not like, oh, I deal with PTSD every day. The statement you just made was, I am doing really well now. And that is the voice that we need to hear, I think. The voice of hope and strength and resilience rather than just, well, you know, I get up every day and I kind of deal with it because that, that's not inspiring anyone. No, I absolutely agree with you. And they, people need to know that there is hope out there. And that that's definitely a conversation. It's That conversation starting and I'm, I'm hearing it more and more. I think I think we're still so far behind in the eight ball in terms of, getting the word out that it's okay. You know what I mean? That cliche, there's become a cliche, but it's so important that it's okay not to be okay. We're still, we're still sucking that. And, you know, I, I remember when I was working and things were fine before I got PTSD, we did have somebody in our department that had, um, had some pretty significant calls back to back, you know, where he almost lost his life and then somebody else's life was lost. You know, not at his hands, but at, you know, right in the middle of an operation he was in the middle of. And, um, and he went off on stress for a year. And, and it was like, it was okay. It was like, you know, call him, hey, dude, you know, do you need anything? Like, I didn't see any stigma towards it. In you know what I mean? Like, you're, it's going to be, you know, whatever you need, hang in there, blah, blah, blah. But then I think so many of us are like that. Like, we, but then when it comes to us, we're like, yeah, no way in hell. This can't happen to us. You know what I mean? And 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 so it's like it's I mean, as first responders, I think it's pretty typical for us. To like it's OK for somebody else to need help, but it's not OK for us to need help. And that's the number one. I think that's the biggest message that I'm trying to get out there besides the post-traumatic growth, which like is so important. But it's also that we need to. It's OK to, to need help and to ask for help and um and yeah, and more people who have survived, it, it, and I don't just mean like they're still alive, but they survived PTSD and, and you know, depression or all these other things that kind of plague us that people need to hear that like this is survivable. There, Like you said, there is hope. And that's because that's when we lose people to suicide when they completely lose hope. And that's, and that's just, oh my God, that just breaks my heart. I just can't, I mean, that sounds cliche too, but I just... The suicides are my number one reason for for doing this work that I'm doing is is getting that out there. And there is hope. And, and yeah, like the post-traumatic growth, I've never been so happy 
so many people that I've talked to who've got, gone through it and come out the other side are are the same way. Like I like I'm not running anymore. Like yeah, I have to deal with a lot of this, but it's just so nice to be present finally and enjoy my life and be able to enjoy the small things and and you know not just constantly be running. And I, yeah, you're absolutely right that post-traumatic growth and it's real and it's absolutely real. And it may sound hokey to people. And like, I remember when I started dealing with this and a clinician told me to like to do breathing exercises. And I'm like, this is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Like I wake up screaming every night. I'm haunted. You know what I mean? All day long by these calls that play in this video loop in my head. You know what I mean? I just, all these symptoms I was having, all these problems I was having. It's like, and you want me to fucking breathe? You think that's going to make it go away? But you just kind of got to like hang in there and, you know, we always say trust the process and, and trust that if you go through this and you get to the other side, it your life will be better than it's ever been, ever been before. No matter how, I know people who've lost everything because of PTS and they got, you know, addicted to alcohol and drugs and all kinds of other problems. You know, they lost their families, they lost everything and they got to the other side and they got through it. And they are better than they've ever been before. So there is absolute hope. Absolutely. Just got to ask for help. Yeah. 100%. Well, I want to kind of get to your journey into the first responder professions then. So you realized you weren't going to be the first female baseball player. You fell out of love with rocks. So how did you find EMS? <laughs> yeah, I'm still not sure that geologist thinking. And it goes <laughs> like, from, you know, how kids are, they change their mind every month. Um, so I went to college right out of high school and I initially kind of wanted, I wanted to be a teacher. And so I was doing that and I loved kids. And then I was talking to a friend at school one day, I went to school at UC Davis and I said, you know, I'd really, what I really want to do is be a doctor. And she's like, well, why don't you do that? And I'm like, Oh, you're right. Why don't I, why don't I do what I want to do? And I'm not the greatest student in the world. So that was a big, issue but i was like i'm gonna apply myself and become a doctor and and so i changed my major and i was taking you know you, the first years you have to take like chemistry and physics and these just super boring ass classes and i'm just like i know i have to get through this but this is so boring and so i, I saw a flyer for an emt class and so i took an emt class and i was just in love like this is the greatest thing since sliced bread you know and i did a i did a ride along and I mean, we went on the dumbest call in the whole world, but I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. And so I ended up getting a job on an ambulance in Vallejo, which is um, really kind of rough and tumble town. It's, uh, it had the highest homicide rate in the nation for a couple of years. And I mean, it was just the, the trauma that we saw there. So anyway, so we, they worked uh, on the ambulances, the fire department. There were no paramedics on fire departments back then. It was in the early 90s. And so every ambulance had an EMT and a paramedic on it. And so so as an EMT, I was running 911 calls. And I just was like, like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. So I took some time off school. And I went to paramedic school. And then I came back. And I just was so in love with it that I was like, I don't want to be a doctor anymore. I like, I don't want to sit around a hospital. Like this is just way better. And um, so I dropped out of school and was working full time as a paramedic and just like the best as the happiest time in my life, I think back then. 
And, you know, I was, I started when I was 19, you know, I'm like 20 years old and I have these people's lives in my hands and I'm working, you know, five days in a row and we were up all night. It was such, such a busy, busy system. And, um, you know, we made, I made like $5.25 back then as paramedic. And, uh, and I, you know, I kind of saw that it's really difficult to make a career out of being a paramedic because you work for the private ambulance companies and they, they just pardon the term, but they just rape you. They, it's a horrible existence in terms of, you know, security and benefits and uh, anyways. Um, and you know, we ran at the fire department and I love the fire department and I saw what they did and I'm like, I want to do that. And, you know, I was always really athletic and play a lot of sports and really like the, the physicality of it looked incredible and a lot more risk taking and, lot more you know adventure and excitement and so um so yeah so i started testing for fire departments and uh that became my career and i just i i could not have found like a better place for me like i don't even i don't know what else i ever would have done or could have done and it was it was just the greatest i was so happy i was just so happy there i just loved it it was the best what was the common denominator in Vallejo that was causing so much crime? Um, well, that's a good question. It was, the city was, it was about 140,000 people in the city. And that's a really good question. I mean, just really, it's just really, well, I'll, I'll tell you right now, I think the, the leadership in that city, actually in that whole Solano County, and I don't mean to upset anybody, but it's very corrupt. Vallejo is very corrupt. The city council is corrupt. There's always been problems with it. The EMS system was even pretty corrupt. But um, I think that that was a big part of it. And and there was also, the, uh, Mare Island was right there. And so there was, um, the military was there and they had military housing and um, the military housing, I have to say, caused a lot of problems in the city. There was a lot of domestic violence. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of problems there, and it's just really low socioeconomic. I mean, I think it used to be a really nice town, and I mean, like the house. There's just these beautiful Victorian houses, and just socioeconomically, it was just is in the dumps. They had built a big track housing area that was literally called uh the country club crest and by the time i got there was working there it was it was like the hood it was the the worst part of the worst like when we go on calls there we we pretty much always have fleet escort and we turn our lights and sirens off you know what i mean it was a very like kind of dangerous area and um and then the other part of it too is we had a lot of highways we had we had uh we had Highway 80, which is a major, you know, like four lanes on each side, thoroughfare from Sacramento to San Francisco. We had uh, Highway 29, which is a two-lane road that goes through. That used to be the old, you know, main highway to get from south to north. Uh, we had, we just, we had, we had many uh, freeways and highways that kind of crisscrossed through there. It was like kind of a major transportation hub in terms of going off east west or north or south or whatever and so the like the vehicular trauma we had was just phenomenal i mean it was incredible and we had highway 37 which 
It's a two-lane road. It still is a two-lane road. It didn't have a divider on it. The speed limit was like 55 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour, and it was a major thoroughfare. And, you know, if you if you weave six inches to your left, you're going to hit head-on with another car, and then that car behind you is going to hit you. And, of course, nobody does 55. Everybody did 70, 75. So, yeah, the traffic wrecks that we have out there were just were unbelievable. And um, so, yeah, it was just – it was incredible. And like as a, as a new paramedic and a young kid, I just, Oh my God, I just relished it. It was, it was unbelievable. The calls that we'd get out there and the trauma and the shootings and the stabbings and the house fires. And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, you know, I'm sure you, everybody's heard of ride along syndrome. You get a ride along and you suddenly don't run any calls, but it was so busy there that we would like, literally like I remember ride along pulled in the parking lot, as our doors are going up and, you know, I see this guy get out of the car and I knew we were getting right along and he's like looking around and he looked lost. And so I roll the window down and I go, are you the ride along? And he's like, yeah, I'm like, get in, we're going to a shooting. And it was just, uh, yeah, it was, it was so busy. It was incredible. The road safety is something that comes up quite a bit as well. And I, I'm baffled why you never hear it discussed or there's never been any incentives to make it better and when there are it's like well you know we've got the teslas now and they you know they keep from the you know the the car in front or we're gonna have automated driving but it's never about the education of the driver and coming from a different country where our driving standards are you know extremely high and i've said about this many times yeah i mean most most british people take two or three attempts to pass a british driving test it's a full-on and you know and if you don't basically perform almost perfectly you fail and it's all kinds of stuff i mean you're on motorways round up roundabouts reversing around corners parallel parking i mean all these maneuvers all these safety things but it drills into you the why like you're learning why do i keep back why do i use my blinker and if you go to the road you know go to england and you drive around you'll see I mean, there's, there's always going to be some, some you know, assholes on the road. They're, they're everywhere. But overall, it's a very kind way of driving. And if someone's trying to merge on to the motorway, people will slow down. They'll let them on. You know, if pedestrians almost to a crossing, the driver will already stop and then wave them across. You know, it's just, it's a different mentality. But 20 years, well, 14 actually in the, the fire service, but 20 years ago now, all, I think most of our horrible memories, most are on the roads, the most ghastly, gruesome, grotesque wrecks. And it happens over and over and over again. I was just mm-hmm. <laughs> in jujitsu today. One guy walked in, he'd rolled his Audi after someone cut him up, almost died. And then one of the other guys I roll with, he said, oh yeah, I almost died eight years ago, rolled my truck eight times and was in a coma for a month. But it's just like, well, you know, the mentality is, oh well. But the first responders see this carnage day in and day out. But then... Where's the conversation of, oh, maybe we should raise the standard. Maybe we should raise the age by a year. You know, maybe we should, you know, make the test where you can't pass until you're actually ready to operate this machine that can kill so many people. And and yet, you know, that you just turn on the TV and it's freaking, you know, whatever person's being investigated now, whatever teams, coaches wearing sunglasses when they shouldn't or whoever's on the Bud Light can yet 40,000 people die in America just on our roads every year. And it's just a shoulder shrug. Yeah. I think it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. That, that highway 37, that two lane road that, you know, we had such horrible accidents on. They finally, 
I mean, I, I was there like eight years and I would say the sixth year I was there maybe is then they finally like put a divider in, you know what I mean? And that saved a million lives, but they argued about it forever. You know, and I think part of the problem too, when you compare problems in the United States versus, you know, European countries, you know, like the UK and, you know, people talk about, you know, a country that has socialized medicine and it works really well, you know, it's a small country, the size of the United States and the size of the differences of opinions and the, the, the diversity, it's so hard to come on a common, you know, thing where we can just say, yes, let's increase, you know, driving standards. It's so hard to come to a consensus when you have so such a diverse population and such a huge population that has such different um, capabilities that and needs. It's just I think it's so difficult to come together, and it's really sad. But I think it's just so difficult to, you know, try and do something like that. You know, you take. I, I've never been. Well, I've been to the airport, but I've never been to UK. But I've been to Ireland and. Italy and Italy is a whole different driving thing. That's a pretty fun place to drive. It's insane. But um, what was I going to say? Oh, like, so like in the San Francisco Bay area, right? Our, our public transportation absolutely sucks. It's you, it's horrible. You would think that we would be so progressive because we're a bunch of, you know, environmental hippies out here, but it sucks. It's horrible. You can only get to a, a very small part of San Francisco you can, if you want to go anywhere, it's just, it's, it'll take hours on public transportation. It's just ridiculous. And then you go someplace like New York and it's like their public transportation actually works. Like, you know, you can actually get to places and it's meant to. So, but that, the attitude towards driving, it's just so ingrained that it's, I don't even know how you would change it. And it, it is, it's really sad and people drive really reckless and, you know, there's so much we have so much about our freedoms and everything here that you know that becomes the argument for everything, and and people don't really aren't don't want to deal with anything until they're affected by it. I think everything's so like far away. You know, you on the news, people are yeah. You watch the news and you hear people killed all the time. That's what every news thing is about, and you just kind of shrug it off. And but I think people like you and me, we're like, no, we've. Like I can't watch the news. If my wife's watching the news, I, I either go in the other room or, or just try to tune it out because it's like, yeah, I've been on that scene. You know, when they talk about, you know, a fatal accident that happened somewhere, I've been there hundreds of times. And so I, it's not just some random story that's going to go in one ear and out the other ear. It's going to go in my ear and in my brain and con, you know what I mean, and and bring all that stuff up. And yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear that. And people, we just kind of gloss over things. I think too much. We just. And it's also survival. Like you don't want to hear about that stuff. And I've totally gone on a completely different tangent than safe driving, but I agree with you. It would be, it would be nice. Like I, I think like here you get your license at 16 and um, I feel like if you get one ticket between being 16 and 18, you should lose your license. You know what I mean? Cause you see teenagers driving like idiots and on purpose and driving fast. And you, you know what I mean? So it's like, why are we not, protecting them better and because they're young and you know they don't they still haven't really understood mortality yet and like i said i'm just totally rambling now so no but i agree with you and i think what i like about these perspectives is 
when we remind ourselves that we're all human beings, whether we live in the United States or Iceland or wherever, we can make changes. But what I see is missing, and it's funny you talked about leadership as you know as a problem in your first department. When do you ever hear a leader talking about this? They don't. They grab their extreme view. And then they also throw shit about the other person and what they said and what they did and nothing actually gets fixed. So I think this no. is the issue is that we need real leaders with some courage to be like, all right, who drives? Who's around a road? Oh, pretty much all of you? Okay, well, let's start fixing this. Regardless of your political you know, persuasion or your gender or whatever, does anyone want to die in a horrible fiery car crash? No? Okay, beautiful. Then let's start doing this and pull people together. And I think that this issue, for example, would be a good one where you could get everyone on the same page. No one's going to be like, ah, I want to be killed in a fiery crash. No. But <laughs> so You're right. But I think people are going to say, I'm not going to ever die in a fiery crash. Like the chances of that happening to me are so slim that I, I think that's, what, that's where our complacency comes from is it's not going to happen to me. And then so they're not going to want to do anything about it. That's like it's somebody else. It's, it's kind of like the whole defund the police thing that happened over here. Everybody complaining about the police. That was a huge success, so, by the way. It was. And so it absolutely was. And it continues to be. And so and now those same people who were up there complaining about the police are. Uh, you froze there for a minute. So they're, they're the same people that are calling for stricter, stricter laws and more police. And it's like, Dud, what did you think was going to happen? And and because that was those people had never needed a police officer and they never needed. they All they see is on the news. You know, they see they see half of a police interaction. They didn't see what happened before that. And they they don't it's never happened to them. So they don't, they haven't seen that, you know, what happens to you when you're attacked or you're a victim of, you know, of violence or whatever. And so I think it's just that whole mentality of it won't happen to me. And I think as firefighters and first responders, we do the same thing with PTSD and everything. It's not going to happen to me. I would have never, ever thought this would happen to me. I was like one of the toughest people out there. And uh, yeah, this isn't going to happen to me. There's no way. And so I never dealt with it or looked at it. So you already had... A lot of, you know, things in your your basket, your bucket, your backpack, whatever analogy you want to use. You enter the world of EMS. Again, in that podcast I listened to, I heard you talking about a fatal fire that you responded to when you were still on mm -hmm. the EMS side. So talk to me about that and the impact or, or the lack of impact that particular call had. Yeah, so it was it was the middle of the day. Um you know, I, we heard the sirens before we even got the call. We were at the station. You know, I heard the a fire and they were going to something big because you can tell when you, if you listen to sirens, if they're going to a boring medical call, if they're going to a fire by how much they pound their sirens and their air horn. Um, so anyways, we knew they were going to something. And then we got the call to a house fire and we got there just as the because it was really close to our station. We got there just after fire. And anyways, to make a long story short, um, a whole second story of a house flashed and there were four kids inside. And one of the one of the firefighters came out and says, we've got somebody out. He's in the living room. We come and look and see if there's anything we can do. So at first I'm like, is it safe? And so so anyways, so I, I was just a paramedic at the time. So we went, so I went in the living room and there was a kid that 
was you know burned beyond recognition there, i mean there's nothing but char like no ears no nose you know no fingers it was just complete char and um i'm like yeah there's nothing we can do you gotta leave him here and so i went back out and then you know over probably span of five minutes i was handed three kids that were still alive but they were completely limp and you know they had skin hanging off of them and they were burned pretty bad and you know they all need to be intubated right now and i was still the only paramedic on scene like the only paramedic there are no paramedics in the fire department at this time and so anyway so you know right away when i found out how many kids were there we called for more ambulances and so anyways, we got all these kids to the hospital and um, it was a huge event in the community. We had two local hospitals, neither of them were trauma centers or burn centers. And so they, um, we ended up flying the three kids out to Children's in Oakland, which is a burn center and a pediatric uh, hospital, obviously. And um, say so yeah, we landed helicopters and they flew all these we at the hospital after they got to the ER and they flew these kids out and it was like I said it was a big deal in the community and we had a critical incident stress debriefing and I remember sitting in the circle with you know all the firefighters that were there all like the nurses were there the doctors were there everybody who was on that scene the police officers were there or were in this room uh, the nurses were crying the firefighters were pretty stoic but everybody Everybody was pretty shooken. And, you know, even some of the veteran fires were like, yeah, I'm not talking about this. They're like, I'm not opening that can of worms. If I talk about this, everything else is going to come spilling out. But it got to me and I'm like, you know, I said what I did. And like I went to the grocery store, like it didn't I mean, it was horrible, but it was um, it just it didn't bother me. I, I wasn't I should say I wasn't shooken by it. It didn't affect me like that. I just kind of went on with my day. And, um, yeah. And, and that was that I just went on, you know, I say like, you, we, we go on these horrible calls and then be like, all right, what's for lunch. And, and uh, you know what I mean? That's, that's why we did our job. And that, that allowed me to do my career for 25 years, but it also completely, you know, allowed me to build, build up so much trauma that, you know, finally exploded. But so, yeah, so that call was pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty harrowing, you know, not having, you know, just feeling helpless having these three kids. And, you know, I'd just start to innovate one and then they'd hand me another kid and then I'd be like, shit. And I'd lay this kid down and I had a really good partner at the time, but he wasn't a paramedic, so he couldn't do any of that stuff. I mean, he could bag them, but, you know, he couldn't get them what they really needed. And, and you know, I had two and then here comes another one and and I still didn't have any paramedic. So, um, so yeah, it was... It was you know, that was a call that when my PTSD finally really, when it really hit is that call would play over my head over and over and over. And the mom, you know, the mom screaming and, you know, the sounds and the smells and the looks on the firefighters faces they they'd come out with a kid. And so yeah, that call really affected me later. I, I, I'm sure it affected me at the time, but it didn't, I didn't know it did, if that makes any sense. Well, in the conversation and the podcast, you made a comment as well about telling the firefighters to leave the child that, that had deceased in there because mm -hmm. the parents didn't need to see that or the well, neighbor didn't need to see that. So early on, you still had that compassion. You were still thinking about the, you know, the 360 picture. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always had. Well, I can't say always, but, you know, I mean, I was I was compassionate with people. And, you know, I remember having a. Um, 
we had a guy who was working on his car and he was like underneath the car and it, it came off the the little lift and was and rolled down the driveway and caught him and drug him down the driveway and down an embankment and and the car landed on top of him and you know and killed him and uh you know so we got there and w- went down this embankment and saw that he was dead and there's absolutely nothing we could do and so I remember climbing back up to this embankment and the wife his wife was standing there you know at the top of this little embankment on the street and you know she had that look on her face like there's nothing you can do, huh? And so I remember I said, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. There's, you know, there's nothing we can do. And, and he's dead. And, um, I remember, I mean, I remember feeling really bad for her and like, man, this is just, this is brutal, but okay. There's nothing, you know what I mean? Like hang in there. There's nothing we can, you know, and, and I felt great compassion for her, but I, I don't know. I just, I just went on. I think people think from the outside looking in that it's the horrors that we see that bother us. And then obviously, you know, when they replay, sometimes they do. But for me, I've talked about this a lot on here. I I was that black cloud. And a, my whole career, I never had a single code save in 14 years as an EMT and an, as a paramedic. I just was that shit show that had the GI bleeds and the brain bleeds and all the things that, you know, the triple A's you just don't come back from. And so, but it was the howling from the loved ones that really stuck to my bones. And so, you know, when you're talking about, you know, seeing the wife or hearing the mother screaming when the kids are inside, I don't know if that was the same for you, but that was the the thing that really, I wouldn't say haunted so much, but if you ask what was the most traumatic thing, it wasn't the grotesque visual it was the heartbroken people that were left behind. Absolutely. And, and the grotesque thing is almost like, like, wow, look at that. Like, that's crazy. But yeah, the grotesque stuff never bothered me. It was, it, yeah, no, it's absolutely the, the people who are left behind. Oh my God, the, hearing a parent scream when their kid is dead, there's no, there's no sound like it. It's just this primal, there's just, there's yeah there's absolutely nothing like it and that is it is it is absolutely haunting it is absolutely haunting so yeah i know you're right you know somebody even asked me when i was working in Blayo, i remember somebody said you know does all the blood and guts bother you and i go no i go that doesn't bother me at all i go what bothers me is the way people treat each other you know the, the violence that would happen and you know the domestic abuse and you know remember we had this lady that her husband beat her to death with a fire poker right in front of their four-year-old and and you know what I mean? The, the other blood and guts is pretty gruesome, but it was knowing that a four-year-old watches mommy get beat. You know what I mean? And her have to go through that. And, and that's what, that's what gets you. It's yeah. It's not the blood and guts. It's, it's absolutely, it's the people left behind and, and uh, yeah. And how people treat each other. I had a cluster of PD calls. Uh, it was two, infants the very first one was literally my medic partner and i were together and we were handed that limp baby you know as they ran out the house mm-hmm. and then the next one supposedly this child had fallen out of the crib and it was you know just battered and you know it was poor thing was just broken and both of those ended up being abuse cases then i had another one that 
I'm 99.9% sure. Supposedly she was found in the shower, but again, I think another abuse one. And then I had a kid that was a shaken baby and now he was, he was five, literally died in my arms. And so again, you think about not what you're looking at, but that backstory. Here you are, like I was, you know, what, mid-30s by that point. Like, why did I get to be 35 and this poor child didn't make it past a few months? That's so fucking unfair. So again, I think as an empath, which drives us into these professions, it's crushing when you see this, you know, this just simple unfairness of some of the things that we witness as well. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You know, when I was going through my struggles and seeing a therapist, I saw two different therapists. I saw a regular therapist and then I saw somebody who I did EMDR with. And um, it really came down to like the common link between all the calls that the playing in the videotape that were haunting me was, was a helpless when I would be helpless and feel helpless. And, you know, seeing a baby abused or baby hurt. It's like kids... And I think that's why animals are difficult for people to deal with too, is that like animals and children don't take a part in their own demise. You know, like adults are are easy in a way of it's like, well, you know, they probably shouldn't have been out at one o'clock in the morning and or they were drinking or they weren't wearing their seatbelt or, you know, I mean, they should have, you know, like that guy that, you know, was working on his car and rolled him down the embankment, you know, I mean, it was innocent, but it's like, well, he you know, maybe he took a shortcut and didn't do enough safety, you know, precautions. And, and so it's like, as adults, we, we usually have a hand in our own demise where animals and kids don't, they, I mean, yeah, kids, but kids don't know any better. And so, you know, and they're, especially in their infants and they're small and, you know, they're so helpless and just that, that helpless feeling of not being able to intervene or be able to help or do something. It's that's, I think that's what really can, you know, really really weigh on us i had a call really early early in my career where a husband and wife were ejected out of the windshield of the car they wrapped the car around the tree and they ejected and they literally landed laying right next to each other and uh, both of them were alive but like quickly dying and i'm like i was once you know the only medic on scene the fire department hadn't even gotten on scene yet and uh i'm like well who do i innovate first you know who who gets I mean, not that they're going to live, but who, and, and I remember that was another call that really haunted me. And it wasn't even, the, I don't want to say it wasn't that big of a deal, but it, you know, it wasn't this big, ugly, gruesome call, but it was where, one where I felt helpless. And I, I think, you know, I think sometimes a lot of those, you know, just like the kids in the, in the, the house fire, you know, I was, I was helpless to do anything because I couldn't take care of these kids because I had too many of them. And, um, you know, I, th- I think that's when those are the ones that we have a really hard time, like, it, you know, escaping or walking away from or, you know, I mean, I was able to walk away from it, but we're, we're not able to process it, you know. I mean, I, I, and you know how many you've been on many gruesome, horrible calls where you're like, yeah, that was fucking crazy. We did awesome. You know what I mean? And then you're like. Like that was a good call. That was that was great. Even though you know somebody might have died, or you know what I mean, or went through whatever. It's but they're I, for me that was the ones that were you know they felt really helpless in that. I think that I I know for me that I really struggled with. In the end, those were the ones that really got me. When I reflect now at 
zero code saves in 14 years. I think about med school training and EMT school training. And, you know, you're like, well, if you do A, B, and C, then yes. we have ROSC or, you know, whatever it is. And then you see uh, where I worked in my last apartment, it was a theme park. So they had, I think, the highest level of code saves of any department in the U.S. And again, five years there, the last five of my career, zero. <laughs> but, you know, so then you have this expectation when you're being taught. And I, I really question the way we teach. Maybe we should be a little bit more realistic in the yes. EMS training. And then you have the black cloud absolute shit magnet that was, for example, me. Even on my bloody medic ride-alongs, people were dying. You know, when I was a, when I was a med student, um, and you know, and so that has a weight to itself. That inability to say, well, what the fuck? I took my job really seriously. I trained diligently. I took extra classes on airway and all kinds of stuff. I did everything the way you told me, and they still died. That was an interesting, you know, like a, not, not hard to process, but you realize that the expectation in a way sets you up for failure and you have to navigate it. And I think the only way of really processing that is knowing that you were a diligent student. And so a, another real push for training should always be not only you should care enough to, to, you know, try and get the person that you're going to rescue, make sure that your partner's safe, make sure that you get out safely and home to your family but also the mental health side. Imagine you didn't make it to the fire floor because you were out of shape and you tapped out and that family died. That should always be in the training conversation because if you lose people and you know you train diligently, you can kind of process it. If you lost someone and you know that you fucked up because you hadn't opened a protocol book in a year and you pushed the wrong drug, that's going to be with you the rest of your life. You know, I, I absolutely agree with the, the mental health aspect of it and you know you brought up a good point it's it's like we you know i am i am a firefighter paramedic which means i'm a rescuer and so if i don't if i'm unable to rescue somebody then that means that i'm a failure you know we look at things so black and white and and that's the thing that we you're absolutely right that we really need to teach in in class you know in the academies and in school that, like you say, I, I mean, I had 25 years and in terms of code saves. I can remember one where the guy actually walked out of the hospital. I mean, I've gotten plenty of pulses back and everything, but I, I can think of one that actually walked out of the hospital and went back to their life. And, um, and yeah, nobody told me that. You know, that show, it was, what is it called? Like Rescue 911 with William Shatner. I don't know if you remember that. It was on and you know, that was like an hour long and, and it was all code saves. And so people started getting the idea like, okay, well, if the fire department or paramedics get here soon enough and these people are going to live and they expected everybody to live. And it's like, no, that that's so rare. That is so rare that, you know, people come back, you know, from a code and it all depends on the, you know, the circumstances and so many things. And, and so people began to have that expectation and we had that expectation because like you said, if you do A, B and C, you get to D and, and there's no, you know, there's no training about that, you know, how often that this is going to happen. And, you know, and, and the whole thing about not being ready for, you know, call or for, you know, training properly, that's a whole nother, you know, bag of, bag of uh, information to talk about. I mean, that's like, yeah, that's, I can't even, that's like so much to un unpack that right there. But, um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right in that the mental health needs to be dealt with more and that the fact that, 
you know, you can be the greatest paramedic in the world. You can be the quickest innovator and the best innovator. And, and you're still, you know, you're still not going to save really anybody in terms of, you know, code saves or, or whatever the people you're going to save, you're going to save and the people that you aren't, you aren't. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of police officers that, you know, have been in shootings and like their partner was shot and killed and, and they will feel like, you know, there's so many of us that feel like we, we should have done more. And they're like, if I'd only done this and if I'd only done that. And it's like, this chain of events was going on before you got there, before you got the call, you know, the person had a cardiac arrest before this was already in motion before you got there. And so you really have nothing to to do with this, you know, in terms of the the poor outcome. There's a good story that one of the uh, peers at the retreat I go to tells, he was a police officer and he's an FTO and he had a, he had a, a, you know, an FTO with, or a a new guy with him and he was having him drive. He was driving one day and, um, and a drowning comes in all the way across town. They have no business being there. They're not going to do anything. They're going to get there super late, but they're like, but he was thinking this will be a good, this will be a really good call for him to practice driving code three under pressure on. And, you know, without, it's not going to make any difference if he messes up or whatever. So anyway, so he's go, he's driving his code three to this call, this drowning, and um, he takes a, a wrong turn and he has, ends up having to turn around and they, you know, they get to the scene, the kids has passed away um, you know, people are cleaning up and all that kind of stuff. And so then they go on their merry way. Two years later, this cop says to his FTO, it's not his FTO anymore, obviously, but he was saying, you know, he goes, remember that drowning? He goes, if I had only not made that left turn and fucked that up, that kid might still be here. And it's like, what? Like you had absolutely no, no impact on the outcome of that kid. Like you were never going to get there. And this guy still felt like his failure or his mistake caused, you know, the, the death of this kid. And we, you know, we just do the best we can, you know, in the circumstances and, and we're not going to save everybody and things happen. And there's, you know what I mean? There's, there's nothing we can do about it. And it's not, doesn't mean we're not a rescuer. It doesn't mean we're not, you know, good at our jobs or we're especially we're good people. And we, you know, we put so much of our value on our job and our self-worth in our job and to do it well. And when we like for you, that just, you know, being black cloud that you call it, it's just gotta be just brutal because that's, you know, who you are, you're a rescuer and you're not rescuing anybody. And, and so you that just makes you feel like, well, who the hell am I, you know, in your identity and all that. And that's another thing they need to teach us in the beginning is not wrap our identities up in this job either. It's, it's, I mean, it's a calling, it's a passion, but it's also a job. It's not who we are, you know? Absolutely. Well, I want to end with some kind of some good news before we go down your, your mental health journey. The three little kids that, that they pulled out and you treated, talk to me about the outcome. Obviously, the sibling was obviously deceased, but what about the three that they were removed from the building? Uh, the, the three, we went back, went back and saw them in the hospital shortly after. I believe they all lived. I know, I think we even went back way later on and one of them, I think they spent like an ungodly amount of time in the hospital, but one of them, remember her, she's riding a, um, like a big wheel down the hallway at the hospital. 
I th- I'm pretty sure they all survived. I'm not 100% sure. They were they were all still alive when we went and saw them like about a week afterwards. But I, I don't I don't even know the full the outcome of them. And I don't even I the mom was not at home. She was next door. And I, you know what I mean, and uh, people you know demonize her for that and it's like I don't know what the circumstances were. I don't know if she just ran next door really quick to, you know, like, do you have any paper towels? Or like, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's just something super innocent that we all sometimes just try to get away with really quick. Um, so, yeah. So, I, I, I'm not sure their long-term recovery, but I know they were all still alive, you know, a few weeks later. And I know one of them did pretty well. Well, I think that's what, you know, kept me going, even though you lose people. Because, obviously, there's lots of saves as far as, you know, pre-codes and all that stuff. So, so those right. were you know, lots of good outcomes. But... It's not being disheartened. It's being ready for that time when you can make a difference. And obviously yours, that particular call that came very early in your career. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So walk me through, I mean, that was your paramedic. Then you enter Berkeley FD. Walk me through now with this lens that you have, your kind of downward spiral and then the ultimate diagnosis of PTSD. You know, I actually went to, I got hired at Moraga Renda Fire, which is a local area too. It's pretty small. I just wanted them to not feel like they were left out or anything. I just worked there for about a year and a half. They were there a great department and I loved it there. I loved the people there, but it was just really slow. It was a very wealthy community and I liked working, you know, in the inner city and being really, really busy. So anyway, so yeah, I went to Berkeley and um, I was a pretty angry person at Berkeley people call me Debbie Downer um they, I was a highly I was respected that I was a good firefighter and I was a good paramedic and um but um yeah I was still I was still pretty angry and I think it's just matters I was still angry at my parents for not being parents and you know I'd get really pissed off at uh leadership or supervision when they wouldn't do their jobs you know it's like just fucking do your job was like the way I felt you know, and then people who didn't train as hard as me, you know, they pissed me off. And um, so, yeah, I was, a, I was a pretty angry person. And anyway, so, I, I mean, I went through the through being a firefighter and a paramedic. And, you know, and then I, I got promoted to the driver and I drove for seven years. And that was a great, I love that. And, you know, I was on the truck for a while and I really love that. And, and then, um, and then I was promoted to, we first were lieutenants, so I first promoted a lieutenant, and we're just too small a department to have lieutenants and captains, so they just made us all captains because it's pretty much the same job. And so then, yeah, I was a captain, and um, I started when the tones would go off, I'd start my anxiety, I'd start having these like panic attacks. Like it didn't matter what the call was for, you know. We, I mean, people would call us up for leaking hydrants. Didn't matter what the call was for when the tone, when that sound happened. I had like a physiological response. Like, like I said, it was, it was like they said, you know, there'd been a mass shooting at a school or something like that. I had the same physiological response to that, that I had to, you know, like the same drunk guy that we go on all the time. So that started happening. And I was just like, you know, what the hell is this? I'm usually like pretty calm and, you know, don't get excited about that stuff. And so that started happening the station I was working at, we were really busy. We were especially really busy at night. I had all the, we were by the UC Berkeley campus and I had all the fraternities and sororities and most of the dorms. 
And, you know, it was just a shit show every night in terms of drunk kids and fire alarms and, and accident, just all kinds of crap. And, um, and so I was horrendously sleep deprived, just really, really, really sleep deprived. And, um, and so, you know, somebody pointed out to me that I was an asshole and, and people were moving out of my station you know, that I was a captain at. And I was kind of like, you know, what the hell's going on? Like, I take care of my guys. And somebody told me like, yeah, you definitely take care of your crew, but people are getting tired of being yelled at. And I'm like, oh shit, like that's not the leader I want to be. So I need to figure this out. And and so I started like kind of, you know, trying to be introspective about that and figure out what's going on. And, and then I had an opportunity to move to a slower station and part of me, you know, my pride got in the way i was like i can't go to a slower station you know what i mean i need to be tough and i'm proud and blah 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 and and uh a couple people that i worked with that were good friends of mine that cared a lot about me were like you need to go to a slower station and so i'm like all right so i moved to a slower station and then that's what it's like i almost kind of liken it to like i got off the treadmill like i was just constantly going just nonstop at this one station and you know even my days off i'd get home and i was so exhausted that it was I mean, I was just kind of walking around nervous energy and, and, um, so I went to the slower station and I mean, we still ran, you know, plenty of calls, but it was a lot slower at night. And so I got some sleep and it's like, I kind of, like I said, I feel like I got off the treadmill and that's when all the symptoms really started happening. Um, I started having nightmares, you know, I'd wake up screaming, um, and then for the most part, I didn't sleep really at all. I'd wake up like at four and I was wide awake and ready to go. And I just thought it was like, oh, maybe I really don't need that much sleep. I just got a little bit more sleep and I'm, you know, I'm feeling great. And, um, and the anxiety started getting worse. And then that videotape of a really bad call started playing in my head. And, um, and it was just like, there's this constant noise in my head just all the time. And I, I could never shut it off. And, um, you know, I was lucky. I had a really good crew that was really motivated and, like I, you know what I mean? I just trusted with everything. Like I never, they didn't need supervision. It was so my circumstances were really good. And then I started crying at work. Like I don't cry. I would cry if I got really, really angry at something. I, that, that's only, I think it was like my mechanism of, well, I'm either going to punch this person or cry. And that was like my, my keep from punching people. Um, but I never cried and I started crying on calls at work and, you know, obviously having to hide that. And then I started, you know, I was pretty irrational at home. I was mad at my wife all the time for like ridiculous things. And, you know, I know I was isolating and, you know, waking up screaming and, and that videotape started playing in my head over and over. And then, um, and then I started crying on the way home from work. I'd go through a 48 hour shift and, you know, be a fine. And then I'd cry all the way home. And I'm like, what in the hell is this about? And then, um, so backing up a little bit to when somebody said I was, I was being an asshole and yelling at everybody and, you know, and all that anxiety started and panic attacks. I'm like, I went and saw a therapist. I'm like, I got to fix this shit. And so I went and saw a therapist and she's like, you have PTSD. And I'm like, yeah, no, I don't. And she's like, yeah, I think you do. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen to me. I'm way tougher than that. There's, I can handle anything. And, and so I continued to see her really with an attitude of like, let's fix this so I can get back to my job and get on with my life. And she's like, no, it's like something you're gonna have to work through. And I'm like, no, we're just going to fix this. And, 
and we're going to move on. And, and so that was in May, I started seeing her. And then throughout the, throughout the summer, it was when things just, you know, I moved to that slower station and things just started getting worse and worse and worse. And until one day I, uh, I got off work and I'm like, Hey, I'm not going to cry. There's no way I'm going to cry. I'm going to make it home. And I made it home. I didn't cry. And I was so I'm like, dude, I got this. And then I was going to go meet somebody to play tennis and I changed my clothes and I got my car and I started driving across town and like the whole world, like just folded on me. And, um, you know, I was bawling, I was crying. I was like, I can't take this anymore. And I looked for a tree to drive into just, just, you know, it was never really, I think that I wanted to die. I think it was, I just wanted this to stop because I even felt like if I even drive into a tree and I'm in a coma for a month. It's like, that's a month that I don't have to go back to work. And the best part of it is I don't have to tell anybody why I can't go back to work. I don't have to admit. And, and cause I was just full of shame. I was just so full of shame. Nobody could find out that, you know, I was such a wuss bag and I couldn't handle my job because I worked so hard on being like the toughest, strongest person out there that like, man, what a sham I am. And, um, and so I started looking for, you know, a pole and then I'm like, ah, poles are meant to knock over. And then I'm looking for a tree. And then I'm like, you know, I know some people who work at this department and like, what am I going to do to them if I kill myself and they have to respond on me? And, and so I'm like, just get to the tennis courts. Just, you know what I mean? It was just like a second by second, you know, people say live day by day and sometimes it's hour by hour and sometimes it's minute by minute. And it was literally second by second. Just get yourself there and get out of this, this mess you're in right now. And that's when I decided that, okay, I, I've got to, I got to take time off work. I can't keep doing this because I am going to end up killing myself. And so then I, I made the call to, uh, to take time off work. And I, I didn't know how to do it. You know, I didn't like, how do you, and so, you know, I called and I was lucky that the battalion chief that I talked to was um, a really good guy. And his sister actually committed suicide from, or I should not committed, but died by suicide from PTSD. So he really understood and, you know, didn't give me any crap about it or anything. And, and, you know, told me all the paperwork I needed to turn out, turn or fill out and everything. And, and so I, so I went off work. I didn't tell a soul you know, people just saw me suddenly, I don't know if you guys have telestaff, but they suddenly saw on telestaff that, you know, I was off like for the rest of telestaff, I was off on sick leave. And, and so I started getting texts and phone calls and I, I couldn't talk to anybody. I didn't want anybody to know, you know, what I was going through because I was like, I'm going to fix this and come back to work. There's, I absolutely will. And so I, I don't want anybody to know. And so I text people back, like, you know, thank you so much for checking on me. I'll be fine. I'm hope to be back to work, you know, soon. And, and, um, and then everything just continued to spiral. It just kept spiral. I kept seeing that therapist and that EMDR therapist and EMDR didn't work. And I had the greatest therapist in the, I mean, just like the best therapist in the world. And, um, and, and things weren't working until I went to that retreat, the West coast post trauma retreat. And, uh, you know, people were saying you need to go. And I'm like, yeah, no, I like, I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need some residential six day program. You know, that's not, that's not for me. I'm not one of those people, you know, same thing with taking medication. I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm taking medication. I'm not one of those people. 
that's not me. I'm tougher and stronger. I can do this myself. I don't need a crutch and just all this tough guy stuff. And, and, uh, so I went to that retreat and I'll never forget the first day I sit in there and there's six, there's seven of us clients sitting at the same table and I look around and it's like, there's like 20 people here and they've all gone through this. Like I'm not alone. I thought for sure I was the only one in my department. We're kind of a small department. We have 125 uniform personnel and I'm the only one that's struggling with this. And that was another source of my shame. Like, what the fuck is wrong with me that all these people are seeing the same shit I am and they're fine. So I went through this retreat and, um, you know, it's funny because most of the people that go to that retreat, they go there to deal with, you know, their PTSD and, and work stuff. And then they find out they they end up dealing with all that other crap that they've been piling in them forever. And, um, and so I left there with hope for the first time and, uh, EMDR started working. You know, I started doing EMDR on the same calls that I had tried before that really didn't do anything. And and the EMDR started helping. And I start I still had a lot of struggles. I still had a few uh suicide issues where I was really suicidal. But I, I'd asked for help, and that was I think the biggest difference in in my in the change in me was that now it was okay to ask for help. And so I, uh, and we, and, you know, I know it's, it's like, I asked for help by going to that therapist, but it was more like, Hey, like fix this shit. Like, I'm not asking for help. I'm paying you money to fix this. You know what I mean? Like, and so, uh, so I would ask for help, you know, I'd call, you know, I had one time where I was really suicidal and I called somebody and I told them how I felt and we talked for like an hour and, and that made all the difference in the world was just asking for help and having people be there for me. And so, yeah, it was a, it was a long struggle and continued therapy and um, yeah, it's been a long, it's been a long road, but I'm, like I said before, I, I couldn't be happier. I've never been this happy in my entire life. So you said that EMDR wasn't working and then it did. Was there an inclusion of the childhood trauma in the second kind of phase of that, that you were bringing into the whole thing that was maybe allowing you to a address some things that hadn't been included before, or were you always talking about your childhood with your therapist? No, I didn't talk about my childhood with my therapist very much, a little bit, but um, I think what, the reason why EMDR started working was I, I was open to asking for help. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, it was like, okay, like I'm, I was never consciously like, you know, I don't want this to work or I'm not open to it. I was totally open to it. I was like anything that freaking helps if, except for medication, of course. And that was another piece of the puzzle too. That really helped me a lot. I'll get there in a second. But um, yeah, I, I just think it was cause I was ready and it was okay to ask for help and it was okay to be helped like in the subconscious part of my brain. Like it really became part of me. Of, it's okay to ask for help. And so I think that's why the EMDR started helping and then when I finally gave in to do medication, like things had gotten so bad that I was, it was after, it was well after the retreat and I had learned, uh, I would go back to the retreat as a peer and I talked to more people and they're like, oh yeah, I'm on medication. And you know, like a cop, like, yeah, I, I'm still working and I'm on medication and it, this is what it does for me. And I'm like, oh shit, like these super tough people are taking medication. And so then I started looking into it and I was like, everybody was on medication at these retreats. You know what I mean? It was like, it was okay. And it was normal. And, 
and things were getting super shitty. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to try it. And oh my God, I ended up, I was put on Paxil and Wellbutrin and like the videotape like shut off in my head. And, you know, when I'd start to spiral, like it was just like a floor was put underneath me. It's like things didn't change. I still felt everything, but I was able to stop and catch myself from spiraling completely out of control. And, and it's funny because I went from saying like, don't even mention medication. If you talk, if you say medication one more time, I'm not going to talk to you anymore to like, oh my God, if you take away my medication, I'm going to fucking kill you. And so, um, you know, it just has such a stigma around it. We'd go on all these calls and, you know, some, you know, 21 year old's girlfriend would break up with him and he'd be suicidal and we'd go and, you know, you look for his medication and it's like, yeah, look, he's on Wellbutrin. He's one of those guys. And it became such a stigma that, that was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to become one of those people. And, and it's like, and then you, and then I, when I learned too, that it's, this is a physiological injury, it's like, it's taking like Paxil or Wellbutrin or any of these medications for PTSD is no different than taking insulin for diabetes, like no different, like your brain needs this medication to function. And so without it, it's not going to function very well. And you're going to have PTSD symptoms. And so you get, you take that medication and it's, and your brain can function and, um, and sleep was another part of it too. When I started seeing the psychiatrist, she says, I don't care what we get you addicted to. You have to sleep. You are never going to start healing. You're never going to be able to move forward in this until you start sleeping. And I mean, that's when your brain, you know, heals and, you know, gets rid of all the crap out of it and the gunk out of it. So if you're not sleeping, your brain is never going to heal. And so she goes, so she put me on Ambien. She goes, I, I don't, like I said, she's like, if we need to deal with you know, you getting addicted to this later, we will, but we're not going to get anywhere until you sleep. And so that was her approach. And so we started doing that and I started sleeping and it made a, a tremendous difference because before, you know, you didn't sleep at all as awake, you know, I might sleep for an hour here, have a bad nightmare, wake up, fall asleep three hours later, have a nightmare, wake up. And then it's just like, yeah, I'm not even going to go back to sleep. So that, that made a tremendous difference. The, the medication and sleeping, like really made a huge difference. It's like, why didn't I do this months and months and months ago? My, my struggle would have been so much easier. It would have been so less. And that's one of the reasons why I, you know, I have the podcast and I wrote the book and I talk about this all the time is because I, I just don't want people to struggle like I did. There's no reason for it. There's no reason to be this super tough person and, and, you know, not ask for help. It's like, don't be an idiot. Don't waste your life. Don't wait till, you know, you've lost everything and pushed everybody away from you and, you know, to get help. Are you still on Ambien now? Or were you able to wean off that one? Oh, I got off of that. It, you know, I still, I still struggle to sleep. I think, you know, when I, your brain's still being wired when you're in your twenties. And, and so all my twenties, I woke up all, you know what I mean? I was getting woken up all night long for calls and because of work. And so I think my brain is wired to wake up all night long. Like I didn't even know it was a thing that you're supposed to fall asleep. And then, not wake up again until the morning. Like I had no idea that that's like, that's a thing. And that's what you're supposed to do as a healthy human being. So I still trouble, have trouble sleeping. Um, like I'll use Ambien and uh, like a, you know, bottle of 30 will last me six months, maybe, you know what I mean? It's like, I'll have a couple of nights where I don't sleep very well. And it's like, okay, I really need to get some sleep tonight. So I'll take, you know, I'll take an Ambien, but it's, it's very, very infrequent. And so, yeah, but I was able to totally get off the ambient. It was, it was no problem. And, 
you know, she also, my psychiatrist brought up the fact that it's like, you know, your brain is so like on this loop of not sleeping that if we, you know, it's the same thing that kind of like Ativan does for you is it, it breaks that loop because your body used to like falling asleep at this certain time and sleeping. And, and if you can get on that kind of a pattern, then you're going to be better and you'll be able to get off of it. And yeah, I had no problem, no problem at all getting off Ambien. So I was fortunate that way. There's a couple of things I've come across. One was very recent, but the first one, uh, Doc Parsley's sleep remedy. He's a doc, uh, Kirk Parsley was a Navy SEAL, became a mm-hmm. physician, joined the SEAL teams again. Now he's kind of one of the sleep gurus. Um, and he back then had all his seals were on Ambien because of their, you know, kind of nighttime right. training. And so now you can buy that. And I've used that once in a while and it works really well. And it's all that one's all um, supplements, so magnesium and, you know, all the different things um, with a little tiny bit of uh, melatonin, not to snow you with melatonin. But the other thing that I came across very recently is a thing called NuCalm. And what it does, you talked about the amygdala, it reprograms the amygdala through sound waves through headphones it's like you're wearing noise cancelling headphones and i'd heard this kind of thing before but the origin story goes back 40 years with this particular company and they actually work with nasa and the seals and all these high performers but it was a machine before six thousand dollar machine so you and i were Mm. never going to be able to afford that well now with the advanced technology and smartphones it's become an app and so there is even a free trial. If you put in Newcom, it's N-U-C-A-L-M, uh, free oh, trial. Check it out. Yeah, it's it's been absolutely game changing for me. So not only oh, wow. the sleep side, but also the down regulation. Because my my barometer was driving, like that's where I would get my angriest. Someone would cut me off. You know, as you know, we just discussed. We've seen a lot of horrible shit, and it's usually the person that, st- that caused it is there, sitting on the curb, feeling sorry for themselves after they've killed a mani- minivan full of kids. So that was my, you know, the place I would see my my anger the most. And it's so, so much you know, less now. I'm still, I'm not happy when it happens, but I don't have this kind of physiological, I want to grab them out their car and smash their face to pieces right, response totally. that I used to have. So, and then there is, you know, there's a lot of down regulation stuff. There's one that you play at night that sounds like rain, but again, there's these undulation um, tones underneath and it keeps you in a deep sleep. So that, I literally only interviewed the guy a month ago, and I've been shouting from the rooftops ever since. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'll check that out. That's pretty cool. That's Thank you for that info. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. Well, then you mentioned podcasts, and um, actually, I want to go back before I, before I go there. So pharmaceuticals. I've had lots and lots and lots of people on here that it didn't work for, but I think this is a really interesting part of the conversation is there's a toolbox. It might be psychiatric meds it might be psychedelics it might be equine therapy diving you name it and the worst thing anyone can say is oh here's what works you know i mean someone else telling someone this is what works understanding that there's this wide-ranging toolbox and everyone has their own combination i think is so important and i've got a good friend of mine who wellbutrin has worked extremely well for him that and testosterone is is a combo um that's getting him through and ironically, he's in a local department here where they work him to death. You were, you know, if you're talking about 48, 56-hour work week, you guys are getting worked to death. So in an ideal world, we change that and we get our responders getting a lot more rest and we don't need to have as much. But I think, you know, until then, you know, these are important tools that will, you know, won't work for some people, but will work for another. And they need to definitely be kept in the toolbox. 
Yeah, I completely agree. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's two different kinds of like medicating, you know, there's like here, oh, you're having these symptoms and just here, throw some medicine at you and walk away. And, and, you know, there's two things that are really, really important is finding somebody who's culturally competent, who understands first responders, you know, how our brains work. Uh, it makes such a difference. And then the other thing is somebody who's follows up. Like, I can't tell you how many people have trouble finding a psychiatrist. Like they'll go to a psychiatrist, they prescribe, you know, they're like, yeah, you have PTSD. Here's some, you know, Paxil and Wellbutrin or, you know, whatever. There's so many different medications out there. Here's some, you know, Seroquel. Give that a go. And that's it. They don't, there's no follow-up. There's no, you come back next week. My psychiatrist, like I had to come back regularly. Like there's no prescription until I, unless I was coming back to, fig, to you know, and then she'd go over all my symptoms again. And, you know, finding, I started on a different one, I think, and it wasn't working. And, um, and it, it takes some time to find, or it can take a long time to find ones that work and, and the tools that work. And you're absolutely right. There's a big toolbox of things that work for different people. And, you know, we even just, I think as a society, we, we want quick fixes and especially as first responders, because we're very action oriented. Like there's nothing worse than being injured or being sick and having like rest be the action. Like, no, we want to do something to fix this now. We don't want to like sit here and wait for something to happen. And so being on, getting on any kind of medication or any kind of tool you're talking about, it, we, we want things to work right now. And it's so hard for us to be patient. And you sometimes you have to wait. I mean, sometimes finding the right medication or the right tool, you know, whether it's gummies or new calm or, you know, just like the, all the therapy, EMDR, you name it. It can take months to find the things that work for you. And we are so good at, you know, so many people are like, yeah, I went to therapist once. It didn't work. And it's like, okay, well, you know what I mean? It's, it doesn't work like that. Or I tried. And I, I even did that. Oh, I first prescribed Zola. And, uh, and I took it once and I felt a little nauseous and I didn't feel any better. And so I said, yeah, that, it didn't work. And so I was like, see, and I was like, see, medications don't work for me. And so it's so important, like you said, to, to look at everything you have and to find somebody who's culturally competent and, and to find somebody who is going to continue to follow up. And it's going to be in a process with you because all these tools are processes. They're not, you know, a one-time fix at all. And so that's what is so important that, you know, we don't get in, caught up in the, you know, I mean, healthcare is in the shit can, at least in America it is right now. And, um, and it's just, you know, like, you know, your doctor comes in and sees you for 15 minutes and then you never hear from him again, or they email you some lab results and you don't, know what the hell's going on so anyways yeah it's being with this and doing any kind of medications or tools it's so important to have somebody who's going to follow up with you absolutely i think the other thing is you know in an ideal world because i agree with you 100 percent, playing the long game I, I hurt my back in the fire service and the workman's comp you know solution was pills and we'll oh, talk about Lord. surgery mm -hmm. you know and, and i was like yeah that's not going to happen luckily i had a kind of coaching athlete background and i'm like no that's bullshit and so found this thing called foundation training. I did Cairo, did PT, but foundation training was the extra tool in this That's toolbox. That's incredible. And yes. Yeah. Absolutely love it. And it took five months. But when I got back to the fire service, I was stronger than I'd ever been. And I'd addressed my, you know, my issues. So mm -hmm. those extra months 
pay dividends for years after that. I just did the same competition I do every year the other day, and it was 225 deadlifts for reps after doing fucking a bunch of other stupid shit before, um, you know, at 49, and it's still working. No surgery, That's no meds. So this is why awesome. the work is worth it, to give, again, that word hope. Um, but in an ideal world, I think the other thing that I think is an important part of the conversation is these medications are amazing, but I hope that on people's journeys that are on meds, eventually this combination of other holistic things will then start weaning them off. And I don't think, and it sounds like you've got a great psychiatrist, but a lot of people in medicine, and you hear it in the firehouse, yeah, well, I got diabetes now, so I got to take this the rest of my life, or I got high blood pressure. Instead of losing weight and taking care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you're on it right now because you're dangerously hypertensive. Let's reevaluate in three months because the goal is to get you off these medications. That needs to be part of the conversation too. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, yes, there also is people who just, you know, people who struggle with depression their whole life. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's because of a chemical imbalance in their brain. Like they're going to be on medication their whole life. Um, you know, I worked with somebody who's physically fit, did triathletes or did triathlons, was incredibly fit. And, um, and trim and you know low body fat all that kind of stuff and has high blood pressure and has to be on high blood pressure medication it's like she's going to be on it the rest of her life because that's just how her her body chemistry works but yeah you're absolutely right and uh and so i i think you know it's just a matter of the kind of determining what category you're in is this something i can um get myself off of you know by taking care of myself and doing other things and so for me I was on the Pax on the Wellbutrin and cause I, I needed that, you know, foundation underneath me. And as I've gotten a lot better, I've gotten off the Wellbutrin, you know what I mean? Because like you say, I had these other tools, like I actually get some sleep now and, you know, I take care of myself and, you know, met, in terms of mental health wise. And, you know, I go back to that retreat and if I need help, I, you know, I call, I call somebody or I should say I ask for help and, and so I was able to get off the Wellbutrin and, you know, my brain is healed a lot. And um, I was able to lower my dose of the Paxil and I'm still on some Paxil because, uh, you know, I still, I don't have the physiological, I don't panic attacks. I don't get that physical response anymore. I mean, every once in a while I will, but, uh, you know, I still kind of struggle a little bit with, you know, like intrusive thoughts. And so the Paxil really helped with that. So it's like, you know what I mean? I, I was able to lower my dose, but it's like, I don't even, I don't even want to get off of it right now. Cause I don't know. You know what I mean? This like, it's very difficult to get rid of intrusive thoughts on your own. I mean, you know, you can, I, I can do all the tools and distract myself, but it's really hard to keep those things from coming up. And so I'm staying on those right now. But yes, pardon me. You're absolutely right. There's two different, there's two different categories of that. And yeah, instead of saying, well, I'm going to be on, you know, insulin and high blood pressure medication the rest of my life. It's like, well, why don't you take care of the, you know, the issue and then you won't need those anymore. You know, if there's, if there's a cause that you can take care of, then absolutely. I completely agree with you, but that's why it's so important for, it's not just to be somebody to hand you some medication and walk away. That's somebody who's really like actually treating you and, um, you know, looking after you and, and making sure that's what you need. And, you know, like the doctor, instead of saying, it's like, okay, well, you might need insulin, high blood pressure medication right now to keep you alive, but let's get, let's lower your weight. Let's get you 
physically active and we might be able to get rid of this and um which is going to make you healthier in the long run so yeah no i i completely agree with you i want to hit one more topic then go to the podcast um you ended up getting a medical retirement obviously with the ptsd diagnosis when you were struggling you're like there's a hundred plus people in my department why am i the only one that's being a pussy walk me through because this is i think a really important thing that i heard in the other podcast i listened to you have this perception of this is what people are going to think of me. What was the reality when you transitioned out with the men and women of your department when you went back to visit? 180 degrees different than I thought. You know, I had to. So once you once you're not in a station for six months, you know, due to an injury or being sick or whatever, um, once you're off for six months and somebody can bid your spot, somebody can move into your spot. And so I was off for six months and my spot was open and somebody took it. And, um, so I had to go get all my, I was still on the books. I was not working, but you know, I was still on the books. So I, I had to go to the station and get all my gear out and clean out my locker and all that kind of stuff. So this person can move in. And so, you know, I called ahead and the, and, um, you know, the crew there is like, Oh, come have lunch with us. And, uh, and so I was talking to them and, you know, I asked one of them who seems to know, you know, there's always that one person who knows everything that's going on in the department and you don't know how, but he does. And I said, so what's everybody saying about me? And he goes, nobody's talking about you. He goes, everybody's saying that, like, if this can happen to you, then holy fuck, this could happen to us. And um, and then I and then I did. Uh, I went back and I talked. There was another guy who ended up getting PTSD, and he called me, you know, calling for help. And so when he and I were both like well enough, we went back to our department and we talked every single shift and told him our story. So it wouldn't, you know what I mean? Just to prevent this from happening to them. And every, I mean, people were just so supportive and incredibly caring. And yeah, the, the response is really overwhelming and how caring everybody was. And, and, and then I started getting phone calls and texts from people in the department saying, man, I've been really struggling too. Like uh, uh, not a lot, but a, a lot way more than i had ever imagined like people who were just tough motherfuckers on, and this guy called me he's like i'm really struggling you know what do i do and um yeah so i was by no means the only person in the department that quote unquote couldn't handle their job i was not the only person that was struggling through this so um i mean i, I don't want anybody to struggle with this but it was also it was another good feeling of knowing that I, i'm not alone in this and this is not just me and it it helped it helped me a lot for sure it's crazy as well because you hear this over and over and over again and what's beautiful is when someone goes through this crucible and comes out the other end all these other people come out the shadows and go hey can i have a word i've been going through some stuff yep but before that because we are stoic you can't come onto the scene of a car crash and be like oh my god there's so much blood and start queening around everywhere you put your your <laughs> right. game face on and, and you take care of it but the problem is we forget to take it back off when the call is done so when you look around a firehouse you're like everyone else is good it's just me why am i being such a pussy what you know they're all fine what's wrong with me but then you climb in someone else's head and it's like everyone else is fine i'm the only one you know what i mean and it's it's absolutely crazy but this is what happens so ironically it takes the people that survive because sadly how many people have we lost that didn't get the help in time 
So the people that survive, that come through, that are now out there speaking like yourself, that are saving so many lives because we're breaking down that facade of, you know, of, of strength, especially to pick on men growing up in a society where a man was Arnold Schwarzenegger or John Wayne, you know, none of neither of whom were soldiers or firefighters or anything of service really i mean arnold ultimately held office but i mean true selfless service right and that was who our fucking role models were and it wasn't even the real people it was the character they portrayed on a film and so we forget that it's the yin and the yang there's time to put your big boy or big girl pants on and handle what needs to be handled but it was that kindness and compassion. It was that softness that took us into this profession in the first place. Yes, and so instead absolutely. of a beautiful yin yang, we become a white circle and we wonder why we all fall apart. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So I met somebody through all my uh, kind of going to that retreat who was uh, he went through a roof and was and, and went right into the seat of the fire and barely got out with his life. And he, he ended up getting PTSD and he ended up having to retire. And it's so funny because, you know, just as we were just talking about, they ended up doing this video thing and they realized that not one person on that crew who experienced that talked to each other about it. Like the captain, you know, the captain had, you know, that his own, you know, issues of feeling like he failed because one like this happened to one of the, you know, his crew members and on his watch and, and um, so he was going through his struggles and then the firefighter who did go through the roof, you know, obviously was having his struggles. And then, you know, the other crew on the truck were having, everybody was having like a struggle around this call and not one single person talked to each other about it. And it was like the craziest thing ever. Like, I remember the captain saying, like somebody said, have you talked to Jeff about it? Then he's like, no. And it's like, why are we not talking to each other about it? They all thought that they were, you know, this failure and, and had a, some source of shame around this or, uh, you know, a source that they should be shameful about. And, and so never said a word to each other. It was just, it was, it was incredible. And that's what we do. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the most powerful mediums that have come out of all this is the world of podcasting, because you can listen on your way to a police station, a fire station, a dispatch center, whatever it is, and hear two, three, four people having a discussion and in your own you know, private way go, wow, I'm not alone. And these people have gone through some stuff and some of it's a lot worse than I've gone through. And now they've come out the other end and they seem happy, um, which I think, again, is, is, is amazing. But it's a very anonymous, beautiful way of storytelling yes. and breaking down this wall. So... Tell me about Firefighter Deconstructed and why you started that and your journey through that podcast. So when I went through, I went to the retreat as a parent, I met somebody else and he was a, a police officer. Uh, he was an undercover police officer. And we all know how deep and dark that world can be. And he ended up um, becoming an alcoholic and, and getting addicted to drugs. I mean, he's stealing narcotics from, you know, the evidence locker and all that kind of stuff. And, he ended up losing his family and everything, and uh, he fought and clawed his way back, and he's doing really well. And he started a podcast, and because he still he works in recovery work and um, you know counseling and everything, and so he started a podcast. And he asked me to be on, and I was like, "Yeah, no, I don't. You know what I mean? I'm not. My story is not worth it." <clears throat> and then, so he kept bugging me, so I finally went on, 
and it was really cool to tell my story. It felt really neat to to tell my story. And it was really fascinating to hear it back because, you know, we're so good at minimalizing things and, you know, what we've been through and everything. And when, when you almost, when you hear it from almost a third person, even though it's yourself, it's like, wow, that's a lot of shit you've been through. And so I, I thought that was pretty cool. And so I started, um, and that's when I started writing this book, you know, and they talk about author platform and you have to get your name out there and all this crap so you can sell your book or somebody will buy your book. And so like, I think I'll, I'll start trying to get on podcasts. And so I just started finding, you know, mental health, firefighting, first responder podcasts and ask them if I could be a guest and tell my story. And I was on this one podcast and um, at the end of it, the lady who runs it um, and it's a whole mental health, it's called the mental health news radio. It's a whole network of podcasts around mental health. And she asked me if I would do a podcast for her network. And of course I said, Oh yeah, like that's not me. You know what I mean? Like I'm not, I'm nobody. I don't, and then I was like, oh, my God, like, this is falling in your lap. Like, this is something you'd like, really like to do. And so, um, so yeah, so I started it, and I named it Firefighter Deconstructed, you know, the human behind the uniform, kind of like yours behind the shield. And and uh, and I wanted to have people on, you know, who struggled and to tell their story so other people can hear their stories and say, Oh, I'm not alone. Like that's my number one message is I'm not alone. And, and just like you said, it's a very intimate private way of getting help. Like you can listen to a podcast and nobody has a freaking clue what you're listening to. You know, you can listen on in your car by yourself, you know, on headphones or whatever. And I don't know many people who listen to them like, you know, out loud and whatever. But so it's a way that so many can listen to this and, and hear these stories without anybody else knowing, because in the beginning you don't want anybody else to know for a lot of people. And so, uh, so yeah, so I, I really started the podcast so people would, would listen to stories and realize that they're not alone and there is hope and they can get help. And then I didn't realize how cathartic it was for people to tell their story. Like I'd have people on and they'd come back and tell me like, wow, that was that was really incredible to tell my story and it was really healing. And I think also, like I said, you know, when I heard my story back, it just made it a lot more real and a lot more like, like, wow, like I've been through a lot and I survived a lot and, you know, holy crap, what a career I've had. And uh, it just kind of brought a lot more validity to it, hearing it, like I said, almost from that third person point of view. Yeah. It was, it's neat. And people, get a lot out of it. Yeah. By, you know, being on the show. And so, yeah. So like, as you know, it takes a lot of work and uh, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm getting back into it and trying to get as, you know, as, as much, uh, or just get more shows done. And uh, like, what's the word? Finding. It, it's kind of like sometimes, I, you know, you feel like you're just talking to a wall. And then you get an email from somebody saying like what a difference it made. And it's like, okay, I'll keep doing this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you mentioned before even beginning podcasting, you're already starting to write a book. Now that book is out. So talk to me about Flashpoint and tell everyone where they can find it. Oh, thank you very much. So yeah, Flashpoint, um, it's a story of, you know, kind of my career and getting PTSD and, and how I got through it and, kind of where I am now and you can get it anywhere. 
But yeah, what a what a labor of love. I, re- I really like to write. And, you know, I just started writing kind of when I was going through this. I'd start writing about the calls that were um, getting to me in my head. And and it it was just, it was really, it, it just kind of, it just kind of wrote itself. Like I'm trying to write another book and I'm like, oh my God, writing a book is hard. And um, so yeah, you can you can get it anywhere. I'm as I'm as honest and raw, you know, in it that I could be. And it's getting it's getting really good reviews. People are loving it and saying they, you know, can't put it down. And um, so yeah, it's been it's been really cool, you know. And you know, the best part of one of the best parts about this pod doing that podcast and even the book too is the people I get to meet. It's been so cool to talk to people all over the world. And hear our stories and how they're just, they're the same. You know, it doesn't matter what country you're in or what language you speak or what kind of EMS system you work in or whatever. It's like the stories are the same. You know, the circumstances are different, but, but the, you know, the human condition is, is absolutely the same. And it's just, it's been so neat. I've met so many great people through this book and through the podcast. It's been, it's been really neat. So yeah, so the book's out there. I'm hoping it helps a lot of people and um, you can get it, you know, obviously Amazon, you can get it anywhere you buy books. It's on Kindle. I haven't done an audio format yet, but um, hopefully that will be soon. But uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been pretty neat. It underlines what we talked about earlier. You know, would the UK model work in the US? I think so. But you have to have the community and you have to be pulled back into we are humans first and then insert pigeonhole second. And the, the more that we see that amongst each other, where we're in different countries, different states, different uniforms, whatever it is, the more healing it's going to go on because that two-dimensional, well, you're this kind of person, obviously all it does is just destroy and, and weaken a nation. But what really heals us and pulls us together is that commonality, the seeing the same person in someone else and starting there at the nucleus and then expanding out. And okay, well, I don't agree with you about this particular thing, but it's all right. We've already had a great conversation and, you know, this is where we meet. And it could be, like you said, a a female dispatcher in New Zealand and a male SWAT officer in Orlando, but they both know what trauma is like. Yes, and they still like have the same... Night, they both have nightmares and they, you know what I mean? They both suffer from anxiety or depression or, or whatever. You're absolutely right. And, you know, I admire some of the people who speak out, you know, who are those, you know, SWAT officers and those, you know, I talked to uh, a, a Delta Force, you know, was on my podcast and, and he suffered from PTSD. And for him to be able to say that, it's like, okay, well, if this guy's going through this, then maybe it's okay that I'm going through it too. And then for that, you know, dispatcher in New Zealand, you know, you know, like being a woman in the fire service, it it was kind of like, well, they expect us, you know, to kind of get sad and emotional and not be able to handle that part of the job because we're not tough enough. And, and so I, that's one of the reasons why I struggled so hard is because it's like, I don't want anybody thinking that I want to, I want to be one of, one of the crew members. I want people to want me on their engine and want me on their truck. And, and I can't be this crying, you know, little woman because then, then what are they going to think of me? And, and so, you know, it's so important for that dispatcher in, in New Zealand or whatever to, you know, to speak up to. And it just allows all of us to, you know, to speak up and to speak our truths. And it's kind of like just by you 
you being you and you being vulnerable and honest and authentic, you allow other people to be vulnerable and honest and authentic. And, you know, that's why I try to be that as much as I can. So it'll maybe give people the inspiration to, to do that themselves. And, and like I said, and get help and know that they're, you know, they're not alone. 100%. Well, we talked about your book, the closing questions now. Is there a book written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our conversation today or completely unrelated. So Brene Brown, I don't know if you've heard of Brene Brown. Oh, yes, I have. <laughs> um, yeah, she, well, she has a, a TED Talk, which is like it's 20 minutes long and I guess like the most the most seen TED Talk like in the world or whatever. But she has a book uh, called um, Gifts, of the Imperfe- Gifts of the Imperfection. And, you know, as I think so many first responders, it's like we're perfectionists. We're so much, we're all or nothing. We put on this tough face. We can't be imperfect. We can't be vulnerable. And, um, and that book is just, it's incredible. It's one of the first ones I read. It was really, really amazing, you know, to help me make it okay to heal and to ask for help. And then, um, oh, there's this great be- a book that I, it is totally escaping me right now. I'll have to send it to you when I can think of it. Um, it's a it's a really short book. It's written like I think kids can read it too. It's so kind of short and has illustrations. And it's basically like what childhood abuse does to us. And it's like I read that and I was like, oh, my God, like, like, okay, this you know what I mean? Like it did happen to me and I'm not just being a wuss bag. It's like, this is what happens to kids when they're neglected. And so it's like, it's not just me being a failure. And it's like, it's the easiest to read in the world. So people who don't even read, like can read this book. Oh, I think it's called outgrowing the pain, outgrowing the pain. And it's, it's, it's another one that really, really opened my eyes and I read a ton. So my gosh, I could go on for days about books. But yeah, I think those are two really significant, significant ones. Brilliant. That did a lot for me. I think one of the biggest realizations I've heard a lot of people on here have with their childhood trauma is to finally shirk off the the blame. They've always felt, well, it was my fault somehow, you know, and realize that no, you were a victim. That word "victim" is used a little overused in modern society sometimes. Mm-hmm. However, a young child that was abused or neglected or whatever had no say in that conversation as you said using your your kind of example of the codes that we don't save that process happened happened a long time ago and you were literally you know a symptom by that point of that person or that family's dynamic and and bad decisions and the moment you can realize that for example especially a young boy that was sexually abused you were just a victim you were preyed upon by a predator and that is it that seems to be one of the biggest aha moments for healing yeah i completely agree and um and yeah so so one of the ways one of the things that really helped me heal was you know they talked about like you know, talk to your little girl and be kind to your little girl and take care of that little girl inside of you. And of course, in the beginning, I thought that was the dumbest thing ever, like breathing. but, um, <laughs> like breathing and, you know, now breathing is my go-to, but, um, but it's like, treat yourself like you would treat a little boy. You know, if you saw a four-year-old being neglected or four-year-old being abused, what would you do? Like you, you'd probably go ape shit on the person that's hurting them. And so protect yourself the same way, like give yourself the same grace that you would give, 
you know, the, a four-year-old that you saw getting abused or knew was abused and what you felt for it. And you have to feel the same thing for yourself in the same, the same exact, you know, kindness that you would give to yourself or that you would give to that other person that you need to give to yourself and look at that little kid inside of you the same exact way that you would look at any other little kid. And that doing that really helped me a lot. So we talked about books. What about movies and or documentaries that you love? You know, it's funny. I, I really like that show, Rescue Me. And I used to, I used to tell people, I say, I'd always say that's the most realistic firefighting show. Because, you know, you'd see them like trying to drag somebody out of a fire and it would be dark. You couldn't even see them and they'd be, they'd be running into stuff and, you know, getting lost, you know, like it really is not, you know, you run in, throw them over your shoulder and run out just before it explodes. And um, so I, but I used to tell them, I go, that's the most realistic fire show. I go, except for the ghosts. I go, you know what I mean? Like Tommy would see ghosts and have nightmares. I'm like, that doesn't, yeah, we don't see ghosts. And then I got PTSD and I was like, oh yeah, I see hmm. ghosts. You know what I mean? It, it was like, it's, it is real. So uh, that show. And then, Gosh, I can't even, I can't think of any, any movies or, um, I'm, I'm a real, like a documentary person. I'm a real nonfiction person. Um, I read a lot of memoir. Um, yeah, that's a tough one. It caught me off guard there. I don't, I can't even think of any, which is funny because I do, I read a ton of books and, uh, like look over at my bookshelf and. To see what uh yeah i can't even no oh no. i will tell you one i will tell you one it's the, the sun does shine by anthony ray hilt hinton anthony ray hinton um he was put on death row for a murder that he did not commit like not even close like he was at work he worked in a warehouse where they lock you in and that's when the murder took place. But um, he's an African-American in the South and they just drug him in and they said, we're, and they said, anyways, they sent him to death row. He was on death row for 30 years. And he talks about how he survived it. And it's incredible. It's the most incredible story ever. And I actually, I think I even mentioned it in my book about his, you know, people, I remember always asking like, how do you get better from PTSD? How do you heal? I don't understand. Like what, what is the work that I have to do to get better? And the work is, is telling yourself that you are worthy, even when you don't feel like it, because a conversation you've had in your head for your, probably your whole life, if you had any childhood trauma was that I'm not enough, you know, I'm not worthy. I'm, you know, I'm a failure. I'm a disgrace. I'm, you know, all these things. And you have to change that talk inside of your head, even when you don't believe it. And that's how you get through. That's the work. And people say, well, it's so hard. And it's like, yeah, it's really hard. That's why it's hard work to get through it. And anyway, so this guy, while he was locked in prison, he had that attitude of, um, you know, talking to himself in, in his mind and taking care of himself in his mind. And, you know, he talks about like going to Wimbledon and playing in Wimbledon you know what I mean? And that's what, and, and just how he survived and how he got, when he finally was exonerated and got out, how, how he kept from being angry and, you know, ruining the rest of his life. And, you know, and it's just, it's an incredible book. And so it's like, I, I first saw it as a, as a story on 60 minutes and I was watching it and I was like, man, if this guy can, 
you know, if this guy can get through that and not, you know, feel sorry for himself, because I think it's so easy for us to get into a pity party. And I always say, you can throw yourself a pity party. And I throw pretty amazing pity parties. But, you know, you just can't, you can't stay there. And I think I felt sorry for myself for a good solid year, you know, that I couldn't work and I couldn't do my job. And, you know, why is this happening to me and all that kind of crap. And, and then when I saw him and then I read his book, I was like, okay, if this guy, if this guy's not feeling sorry for himself, but is working his butt off, you know, to get his life back, then it's like, okay, I can do it too. So it's a really incredible book. And I think it really speaks to how the brain survives and how the brain heals and without, it's no physiological, you know, there's no big medical words in there at all, but it, it's really incredible. So yeah, that would be a big book I would recommend. Brilliant. I'm going to have to get that. Thank you. Well, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh my gosh. I'll send you a list. <laughs> yeah, there's been some pretty uh, amazing... I've had some amazing people on my podcast that, you know, just like we said, like, you know, you're like, oh, okay, what's this guy going to you know, have to say, and, you know, some of the stuff that just he, they talk about are just brilliant. Um, yeah, I, I'm again, drawing a blank right now off the top of my head, but yeah, there's some, there's some, so many amazing people out there to talk to. Brilliant. So many people. It was the Delta guy. Was that Tom Satterley that you spoke to? I was just going to say, yeah, Tom Satterley. Yeah, yeah he's pretty amazing. He he's, is, he's on a really show amazing as well. guy. Yeah, yeah. He's, oh, right on. He's definitely, uh, you know, forging a path when it comes to, again, debunking that myth that, well, I'm a special operator, so I don't, you know, I don't have feelings. Because to me, if a Delta guy or an SAS or, you know, these elite, elite performers in the tactical space can be vulnerable and honest and open about their feelings... Than the rest of us, like, well, this tough guy thing that I know an SAS guy or, or a Navy SEAL or a Delta guy that can deal with their feelings and be open. So, you know, your excuse is invalid. So I love that. It kind of breaks that facade of, like I said, that that false masculinity that I was raised on. Yeah, absolutely. Like you're going to go, why don't you go tell Tom Satterley that he's a pussy for getting PTSD and, and you know what I mean? And having this these feelings. It's like, yeah, I dare you. You know what I mean? And um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. These people, that's why I say then these people, when they speak out, it does just tremendous things for the rest of us. And then there's another actually book that I read when I was, when I was starting to struggle, I was looking for any kind of information on this. And the only book that I found at the time was written by Clint Marlerchuk. I don't know if you watch follow hockey at all yeah he was on my show too had his throat cut oh in the game. right on yeah amazing so guy. yeah so that i uh yeah so i found his book and i read it and it was like oh here's a super tough badass who felt who feels the same way i do you know what i mean it's just like it made it okay for me to feel like that and it made it okay for me to get help and yeah clint and i are friends now and um yeah i i love that guy and I sent him an email you know, after I read the book and he emailed me back. It was just, yeah, he's an amazing guy. So that's another one. Yeah. That's cool. Very cool. Obviously, kindred spirits. All right. Well, then yes. the very last question before we make sure where people know where to find you, the podcast, the book, what do you do to decompress? I walk. I, um, I take my dog. I have a goofy dog named Harriet. She's an English cream golden retriever. She's the best. 
Um, I get outdoors. That's a big one. I try to get into nature. I, sw- I, sw- I would say the number one thing though to swim is I get in the water. I like, I really like open water swimming. It's my favorite thing to do. I've done the Alcatraz swim six times and I always like get in it and it's like, in a, it's a race, even though I'm not racing anybody, but you know, it's like, you want to have a good time and everything. And it's like, I just want to go out there and bob around in the ocean. And, uh, but swimming is a big one. The water is amazing for me. And then breathing, breathing is my short term one. Like I'll start kind of, uh, kind of spiraling a little bit or getting wound up and it's like, okay, I just got to stop and, br- and breathe. And I breathe and just take some deep breaths and just stop wherever I am. I mean, I can even be in my car and do it anywhere I am. And, and, and that's my big one. Um, and this sounds silly too is, you know, so I think one thing that, uh, first responders really thrive on its structure. And when you retire, you have no structure around you. And so, you know, like we're not good decision makers. Like we can never decide where to go eat, you know, all that kind of stuff. We, we can make life and death decisions and, you know, in a few seconds, but we can't make decisions, you know, like daily decisions. And I know I procrastinate and, and so this is going to sound really silly, but I, I like to do puzzles and Legos because there is a, you know, I have this pile of Legos and I'm an instruction manual and I put this thing together and at the, and I just, it's something I can just follow and I don't think about, I mean, or I can think about things, but it's like this incredible structure that I have and I build something and it's so, it's just, it really, when I start getting like kind of wound up, you know, I'll bust out, I have a ton of Legos and I'll build some, I'm not good at like making up crap my own, but like following instructions, it's, um, it's really amazing. So I do Legos. My son and I does. Write. And I say that because oh, he's cool. 16. He's not a little boy, but it's the same thing. He'll be there and he does the creative stuff and um, you know, when he gets a new set, he'll follow the instruction manual, but then he'll start changing it and adapting it. And but that's absolutely one of his things. He'll be in the room, cross-legged, you know, put the music on now he's older, but he'll be in there for hours sometimes. Just him and this room full of Lego. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and just lately, like t- trying to like all the marketing with my book and everything, like I don't like doing any of that stuff. And it overwhelms me and makes me feel crappy about myself because like I said, I can't do an Excel spreadsheet. And so I'm like, oh, like that was just getting really wound up lately. And so Friday I was like, screw it. Or I'm just going to sit here and do Legos all day and not worry about any of that stuff. And, and I'm like, oh my God, I feel so much better. So yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, speaking of the book then, so remind everyone, you've got a, a beautiful website. So where's the best place online and social media to find all the things? So my website is Christy E is an Edward Warren. So C H R I A S T Y E and then W A R R E N.com. That's my website. So you can find my, my podcast is there. My book is there. All that stuff is there. Um, we're, you know, like I do little bookstore gigs and stuff like that. And all that stuff will be there. Um, I'm on Instagram and I'm on uh, Facebook. I can't even, I think, Instagram is Christy E. Warren also, and there's also a firefighter deconstructed. I think it's FF deconstructed on Instagram. I'm on link. I'm in all the places. And then you find my book anywhere, anywhere you buy books, you can, you can find it. And um, yeah, get my book, <laughs> please. <laughs> 
Well, Christy, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, like I said, I've been aware of, of you and your podcast for a while now. I always say this, the universe seems to just make it happen when the time is right. Now your book is out. Now we can actually help share that and get people reading it because I'm the same as you. My self-marketing is absolutely fucking awful. I wrote a book. It's there if you want it. <laughs> but I, I just That's exactly can't. how I feel. Yeah. I feel the same way. Like, oh, well, I wrote a book. If you want to read it, that's awesome. And if not, I don't care. And yeah, now you have to like, oh, how many likes did I get? And how many reviews do I have? You know, and all that kind of bullshit. And I just fucking hate it. Mm -hmm. One of the authors I had on here, he said, as soon as he's done with his first book, he just forgets about it and moves on to a second one. And that was kind of what I lent into. I'll revisit, you know, sometimes. And obviously yours has just come out. But again, for me, it's like, well, my platforms are about other people i don't want it to be about me and my book and it's a Absolutely. hard thing because yes you have to obviously let people know it's there because it will help but you know with so much narcissism in the world you're like well i don't want to put my face out too much um i want to be behind the shield where i'm comfortable i <laughs> know uh, i agree it's like yeah we're not good self-promoters we aren't at all no we're you know what i mean we you know anybody like if we do some amazing rescue or something at work and the news you know sticks a microphone in our face it's says wow and you're like no i was just doing my job it's no big deal i don't like go away and and yeah it's the same i i hate it i for i did i published this with a hybrid publisher which is exactly the same as traditional in terms of all the distribution and everything but you just put the money up front so i i just would like to earn my money back so i spent all my money on it and so that's what that's why i that's I mean, I want people to know about it so they can read it and it can maybe help people and like try to get it in the fire service and, and well and known. But um, yeah, I also want to earn some money back because I spent it all. On this. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could forget it because that's what I do with my podcast. I put it out there and I don't worry about it. But yeah, anyways. Sorry, I'm rambling again. No, not at all. Well, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you for telling your story again. I mean, revisiting some of these memories obviously can still kind of open a wound a little bit but as you're aware more than most there's so much value to this story when it gets out there for people to hear and obviously learn more even in, in your book but uh, i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and coming on the behind the shield podcast oh james thank you so much for having me this has been yeah it's been a really great conversation i really enjoyed talking to you and thanks for getting my story out there and, and thank you for doing what you're doing. Like I said, I listen to your podcast and you've got some amazing stuff on there and uh, yeah. And keep telling your story and keep telling other people's stories. It's, it's, we just got to get the word out there. I appreciate you having me on and the time and everything. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.